recognized symbol of excellence and brotherly entertainment. Sitting there backstage and I'm getting ready to go through that curtain. I'm just waiting for that glass to break. And when it hits, when that crowd explodes, I might as well be a junkie and I'm hooked on a drug. I think I'm dying. Dying for sure. I'm getting off the elevator on the 27th floor of the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Seattle the night before WrestleMania 19. And my heart's beating so hard it feels like it's going to crack a rib jumping out of my chest. I'm saying to myself, I'm 38 years old and I'm fixing to freaking die. Right here, right now. I'm having a damn heart attack. And I'm wondering how the hell it could have happened. I'm Stone Cold Steve Austin, the toughest SOB at World Wrestling Entertainment, better known as WWE. This is Saturday night, and tomorrow's WrestleMania 19, the biggest pay-per-view event of the year. I'm in one of the biggest matches of my career, wrestling The Rock, in my first real match after being out of business for over eight months. I've been working out twice a day at the gym and doing nothing but focusing on this match. Mentally, I'm ready. Despite all the challenges I've been through in the last couple of years. Injuries, surgery, rehab, divorces, and most unexpected of all, maybe, my leaving WWE. Physically, I look like somebody who deserves the name Stone Cold. But truthfully, I'm a walking disaster area. My back, neck, and knees are a mess. I've got two fused discs in my back and others just barely holding together. But tomorrow's WrestleMania, and I need to perform the best I can and put on one hell of a match. Hell, it could very well be the last one of my career. I want to go out in a blaze of glory like anybody would. Standing here on the 27th floor of the Grand Hyatt, my heart pounding against my ribs like a gorilla trying to bust its way out of a cage. That wasn't in the plans at all. I start walking to my room. But my feet are going crazy and my legs are shaking uncontrollably every time I lift my weight off of them. I finally get to my room and get the door open. I say, okay, you're having an anxiety attack or something. So I take a couple of deep breaths to settle myself down. Maybe it'll pass, I think. But it doesn't pass. It's still as bad as before. Hold it together, I tell myself. Getting over to the phone, I call the front desk to see if they have a doctor. 
I say, I need someone up here. I need help. I think I'm having a heart attack. Liz DeFabio, one of the WWE executives, just happens to be walking down the hall. I have my door wide open, waiting for some help. So I see her and yell, Liz, I need help. I guess I'm as white as a sheet and I've got some weird kind of look on my face because I'm freaking out. My legs are shaking and I can't make them stop. Liz rushes in to help, and then Bob Clark and Chris Brandon, the WWE Raw trainer, come into the room. Then Dr. Robert Quarles, the WWE team doctor, comes in. That bad feeling I got when I stepped out of the elevator feels like it's going to come back at any moment. I just want to keep walking around the room, walking around the room. They all want me to sit down, but I don't want to. I really feel like this is my day to die. It's that kind of feeling. The EMTs hook a bunch of medical stuff up to me. They want to get me to a hospital. Easier said than done. There are so many fans downstairs, it's a madhouse. We do our best to be inconspicuous, so none of them will know what's going on. A group of us just walk out of the hotel in a pack with me in the middle. But a bunch of fans see me being taken to a waiting ambulance. There's a funny moment when I look in their eyes and they look at mine. And it's crazy, because no one knows what's going on. Not even me. Finally, we arrive at the hospital, and they keep the blankets pulled all the way up over me so no one can see who they're carting into the place. I'm thinking, Jesus, stone cold against a rock at WrestleMania in Seattle? That's tomorrow for crying out loud. But I don't think I'm going to be wrestling the rock at WrestleMania. Right now, I'm having a hell of a lot more concerned about just staying alive. JR, Jim Ross, and Vince McMahon arrive while I'm in the emergency room. After it seems like I'm okay, they leave, thinking I'm coming back to the hotel that night. Then the doctors decide they want to keep me overnight for evaluation. So J.R. and Chris Brandon come back to the hospital. When J.R. gets there, he asks me what I ate today, which was practically nothing. He sends Bob Clark back to the hotel to give me some good food from hotel room service. When he gets to the hospital with the food, I ate pretty good. That's a good sign. After I finish eating, we talk for a while. Then everybody eventually goes back to the hotel. After everything I've done with this company and everything this company has done for me, I want to do business with The Rock. I want to do it right. The Rock is going to beat me, and I want him to do it right in the middle of the ring. He's done a lot of stuff for me in my career, and vice versa. So that has to happen. I wouldn't have it any other way. Finally, somewhere around 3 or 4 in the morning, I calmed down enough to fall asleep. Hi everybody, this is good old JR, Jim Ross. I had just walked into the green room to see how things are going for our staff and talent on what, to that point, had been a pretty uneventful Saturday afternoon. Shane McMahon informed me that Steve had just been taken to the hospital. When we walked into the emergency room, Steve was hooked up to a slew of monitors that were supposed to keep an eye on his heart rate and blood pressure. I could tell he was glad to see us because he tried to crack a few jokes, but the Texas rattlesnake was scared and he had every right to be. Eventually, Steve's vital signs started to improve, but the doctors wanted him to stay overnight so they could continue to evaluate his heart function. I suggested to Bob Clark and Chris Brannon that they hop back in the van and go to our hotel and get Steve some food. Steve's appetite returned, to say the least. He ordered two steak dinners and two grilled chicken breast dinners, so I, I felt confident as I left his hospital room well after midnight, that Stone Cold would be able to lace his boots up, perhaps for the last time, 
in just a few hours at Safeco Field in Seattle. Stone Cold had had a close call, but he was going to survive, just as he has done his entire life. And what a life it has been. When I was born, there was no sound of breaking glass with the Stone Cold entrance music pumping through the hospital and loudspeakers and doctors tossing beers. That would have been pretty cool, but it didn't happen. My story starts in Austin, Texas. That's where I was brought into the world on December 18, 1964, as Steve Anderson, the second brother in an eventual line of four brothers and one little sister. My mom, Beverly, is a great lady and a wonderful mother who did her best to raise her boys the right way. After mom and my biological father divorced, she moved us from Austin to Victoria, Texas. Mom raised us right and hard as it was on her. She was a single mother with three kids, my older brother Scott, me, and my younger brother Kevin. And she met a wonderful man named Ken Williams, and everything kind of took off from there. It was a marriage made in heaven, as they say as Ken fell in love with my mom and all of us kids, too. I want to say something about Ken Williams. What a hell of a man he is. Ken is the only father I've ever known, and I love and respect him as my own. In our family, the word step, as in stepdad or stepson, was never used. When someone asks me who Ken is, I always say he's my dad. He is my real father in every sense of the word. And then there's my mom. I absolutely love her to death. She has been my inspiration, along with my dad, for everything that I've done in my life. I have relied on her for support, love, advice, taking advantage of her wisdom and experience. I have screwed up plenty of things in my life. That's all a part of living. Through all of my screw-ups, my mom has understood and helped me in any way she possibly could. It has been one of my missions in life to make her proud of me and never embarrass her. I love and respect her more than any other person in this world. Oh, and later in life, I learned that my mom went to high school with Virgil Reynolds, who had become a professional wrestler, Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. He was a few grades ahead of her, but she says he was a good football player and didn't weigh as much as he would later on, if you will. I'll help you read between the lines. Don't mess with Stone Cold's mom. I have to say I have the best parents in the world. My dad's family had a cattle ranch outside Edna, Texas, and we'd go out there and help with throwing the hay and herding and taking care of the cattle. It was cool, but we managed to always get in some kind of trouble. If I didn't think of something to do to cause some trouble, my brothers did. Dad expected us to be these accomplished cowhands. We were on horses, but we didn't know what the hell we were doing. To expect us to be able to round up cattle on horseback at 10 or 11 years old or whatever we were, man, we were pretty green. One thing I could do really well was what they call throwing the calves. Basically, that meant getting them in a pen and flipping them over so we could give them their shots, mark their ears, and so on. When it was castration time, Kevin would do the smaller ones, and I'd handle the bigger calves. We did all that real well, overpowering the cattle, and I think that's where I got a lot of my upper body strength. Nowadays, they've got elevated shoots that make it easy, 
We did it in a small pen and had to wrestle these strong calves over and over and hold them down. When we were done with our chores, sometimes Dad would let us ride the calves. It was fun trying to stay on, and that's probably where I took my first bumps. At night, we'd often watch TV. I always looked forward to seeing wrestling, but my brothers always wanted to watch something else. I'd say, no, we're watching wrestling. When the show is over, you can watch whatever you want to watch. If I told them that there was going to be something special going on in the ring and sell them on the thing, they'd watch. I was doing wrestling promos, selling the product back then, and I didn't even know it. In high school, I started working out with weights. My body responded to it. I got thicker and more muscular. Jacked up, some would say. This paid off as I got a football scholarship at Wharton Junior College in Wharton, Texas. And from there, I got a full scholarship to North Texas State University in Denton, Texas. That was a very lucky thing for me in many ways. For one, if I'd gone to school out of state, I would not have seen the ads for Chris Adams Wrestling School that aired on World Class Championship Wrestling, the Von Erichs TV wrestling show out of Dallas. Denton, Texas is north of Dallas by about 35 miles. Being 35 miles north of Dallas, I was also about 35 miles north of the world-famous Dallas Sportatorium. My North Texas buddies and I would load up on a Friday night, drive to Dallas, and watch the wrestling matches at the Sportatorium. Saturday morning, the next day, they'd be doing the TV tapings, and I'd be right there, about 10 rows back, watching the guys wrestle again. I've always had a knack for putting myself in the right place at the right time somehow. This was one of those times because I was getting deeper and deeper into wrestling. I watched world-class championship wrestling with the Von Erich brothers, and we started getting Bill Watts Power Pro Wrestling and Mid-South Wrestling, hosted by Jim Ross. After my college football eligibility was up, I still didn't have enough credits to graduate North Texas State. I was still lifting weights and staying in good shape, but I wasn't going nowhere. I didn't have any direction. That's when I started seeing the commercials for Chris Adams Wrestling School on TV. And for the first time, I started thinking seriously about getting into wrestling for a living. My college education had ended, but my wrestling education was just getting ready to begin. And what an education it was going to be. It changed my life forever. I saw TV ads saying that the English-born wrestler, Gentleman Chris Adams, was starting a wrestling school, and I copied down his contact information. It got my attention. I asked my folks if they would mind if I gave this wrestling a try. Yeah, they encouraged me to go try it. They said, yeah, give it a shot as long as it's not illegal or immoral. My mom said I had to change my name, though. I told her I was going to change it to Steve, son of Beverly Williams from Edna, Texas. I called Chris Adams one day, and he said, Hey, we're going to do seminars for the school, and it'll cost you 45 bucks to go to the seminar. And if you sign up for the however-many-month course, it'll cost an additional sum, like $1,500. So I figured, okay, I'll go check it out. I had nothing to lose but a little time and $45. The seminar was set for an early Saturday afternoon after the TV tapings and interviews were over and the fans were leaving the sportatorium. I had long blonde hair at the time and I was pretty jacked up. I was standing in line for the school and people were coming out because the TV tapings were over. And here comes the wild Samoans, Samu and Fatu, and those two guys from South Africa, the Simpson brothers. I'm thinking, man, here are all these wrestlers from TV walking right by me. And then the fans started coming up to me and asking me for my autograph. I was saying, hey, I'm not a wrestler. I'm here to go to wrestling school, but I'm not a wrestler. They said, well, sign this. And I said, but I'm not a wrestler. And they said, yeah, but we know you're going to make it. Go ahead and sign. Soon after that, we went into the room where they were holding the seminar, and there was Chris Adams. He looked over at me a couple of times and saw something, 
because of my size, I guess. The classes were every Saturday after TV tapings at the Sportatorium. At first, I was very slow to catch on. Chris was showing us all these holes, and I was fumbling through them. I needed repetition. I'd never wrestled before in my life. It was awkward. But Chris was cool with me. He kept his eye on me because he knew I was going to be his guy. I was the only guy in the class who had a marketable physique and a look. Finally, things started coming along for me. I began to look like I knew what I was doing, and Chris said, Steve, I'm going to have your first match pretty soon. I said, let's do it. So after five months of training, I was going to have my first match on World Class Championship Wrestling Television against journeyman Cajun wrestler Frogman LeBlanc. The date of the match was May 11, 1989. It's not a date I'm likely to forget anytime soon. Chris Adams didn't try to smarten me up or teach me the real deal when it came to pro wrestling. He was just teaching me some moves to use in the ring. I didn't know I wasn't really supposed to go out there and beat the hell out of somebody or have somebody beat the hell out of me. Chris didn't tell us, this is a work, a performance, and you have to protect your partner. No, we were just learning to wrestle. He wasn't exposing the business. He was just teaching us the basics of how to apply one hold or another. As it turned out, I gave Frogman a blanket beating. I must have arm-dragged the poor guy six or eight times in that short match. I put a bunch of arm bars on him, and believe me, it was brutal. It was horrible. I remember the referee of the match was Tony Falk, and a couple of times I was a little lost out there. He helped me out a whole lot during that match. He called a few things for me and helped me get through it. And for my efforts, I got paid 40 bucks. After I beat Frogman LeBlanc, I went on the road and made even less. 25 bucks a match, more often than not. When I was breaking in, I used to ride from town to town with Skandar Akbar and Bronco Lubitsch. Akbar was the evil Middle Eastern wrestler turned manager who was born Jim Webb from Vernon, Texas, and Bronco was the longtime world-class referee and former tag partner of Angelo Poffo, Randy Savage's father. Both of these men were former veteran wrestlers who knew a lot about the business and had been all over the world. I was so lucky to be talking with them, learning the psychology of pro wrestling. They are talking to me, telling me how to do things as we were going up and down the road was a terrific education in the wrestling business. Both Akbar and Bronk were excellent storytellers. When one of them told a story, the way they laughed made me want to laugh too. It was a real good time in my life. Those guys and their wealth of knowledge about ring psychology were tremendous influences on me throughout my whole career. They also furthered my respect for the wrestling business. Pretty soon I was wrestling lots of weekend shows in Dallas-Fort Worth and the surrounding area and doing the televised wrestling shows from Dallas. And I was still using my real name, Steve Williams. By then I was working for Jerry Jarrett, who ran the Memphis Wrestling Territory and who had a live television show on WMC-TV Channel 5 on Saturday mornings for more than 25 years. Jarrett had bought the world-class promotion in Dallas and renamed it USWA, United States Wrestling Association. Hi folks, this is JR, Jim Ross. The Memphis Territory was a unique place by all accounts. Some guys passed through Tennessee and made a few bucks. Some guys literally stayed there their whole careers, like Jerry the King Lawler, and endured the cyclical ups and downs of a wrestling territory. Some guys went to Memphis and starved, but they got a great education in the process. Steve made virtually no money wrestling in the Tennessee Territory, but he was provided with an opportunity to learn his craft and to pay the dues necessary to make it in this business. One thing I can tell you from personal experience, 
is that when you make long car trips with veteran wrestlers and you're the new guy or the rookie, you had better be a good listener. The old timers do not enjoy hearing newcomers speak and resent you if you do. By working for Jerry Jarrett, wrestlers got to work in both territories, Dallas and Memphis, and be seen in two different television markets. Jared didn't pay much, but you got a lot of experience to work with guys who were dedicated to learning the business. That's when it sent me over to Mid-South Wrestling in Memphis, a pretty famous territory where Jerry the King Lawler was usually the champion. Got a lot of television exposure over there, which could only do me good. So I drove my 1988 High Hyundai to the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, and was pretty excited the whole way. I remember walking around the dressing room when I arrived. I was the first guy there, a habit I've tried to continue my whole career. Dutch Mantell, the booker, looked at me and said, Who are you and what are you doing here? I said, I'm Steve Williams. Jerry Jarrett told me to come find you. I'm starting tonight. He said, You can't be Steve Williams here. There's already a wrestler named Dr. Death Steve Williams. He looked at me for a moment longer and said, All right, you got 15 minutes to come up with another name. Well, I got really nervous. I was in a new territory. It was my first gig there, and I didn't want any problems. I was still trying to come up with something that didn't sound stupid when Dutch came back. Well, he said, What'd you come up with, kid? I said, I didn't come up with anything. He went, okay, you're Steve Austin. What was I going to say? I couldn't come up with anything else, so I was Steve Austin. I made my debut in the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, and the booker Dutch Mantell gave me my name, Steve Austin. I think it was a week later over the weekend that I had my first match. It was in Lebanon or some town like that in southern Tennessee, and I was working with a guy under a hood, a mask. I forget his name. Now, of course, I was green as hell, and Dutch only wanted me to go out there and work seven or eight minutes. When I came back to the locker room, I thought I did pretty well. I walked back to the door, and Dutch went, What the hell was that shit? I thought it was a pretty good match. I said, What are you talking about? He said, Damn, brother. Chris, come here. He was talking to Chris Champion, a guy who was working his way up the ladder, trying to catch a break. Dutch Mantell told me, Put a headlock on Chris. I got Chris in the hole with his head low on my side. Dutch said, no, don't do that. Pull him up here on your arm so you can listen to him talk to you. All of a sudden, I got it. My opponent was attempting to communicate with me, trying to call the match to me, but I didn't really hear a word he said. Dutch balled me out for about two minutes, just ripping into me. Then he said, you see that chair out there? There was a steel chair standing up against the wall. You get that chair and you sit in the doorway and you watch every one of those matches out there in the ring. That's the only way you're going to learn. So from that day on, for virtually my whole career, I've watched every single match on the card. Not so much in the last year or two, but damn near every single match on every card before that. And I did it because Dutch Mantell told me to. He was a big influence on me. Dirty Dutch was a damn good teacher. One day we were just sitting there talking. I was asking questions as usual, and he was being real nice to me and explaining things. Then Dutch said, you know, if you ever turn hill, you could be a real cocky son of a gun and call yourself Stunning Steve Austin. So that's how I got the name Stunning Steve Austin. Dutch Mantell gave me that one, too. Of course, I wasn't trying to be stunning with my look. It was more of a mindset for me. But that was my first bit of education what a character meant and how I was supposed to be it or portray it. Another guy who helped me out a hell of a lot when I was in the USWA in Memphis was Danny Davis, then known as Nightmare Danny Davis. I remember one time I was going down the road, some little spot show, and I was told I was going to work with Danny Davis. Well, that was a big thing for me as he was a very good wrestler and a star. 
Before the match, I got together with Danny, and he said, Okay, kid, you ready? I'll just listen to you. I said, What are you talking about? He says, Yeah, you call the match. I said, Hell, Danny, this is my chance to learn something from you. He went, No, no, I've seen you work. You're great. If you need something out there, I'll give it to you. You call the match. Hell, I went out there with Danny Davis, and I called 85% of the match. That's what kind of nice guy he was. He'd been working how long? 10 or 15 years? Of course, he was a great tag team wrestler. He had a hell of a run in Memphis. I love working with Danny Davis. He was a very unselfish guy. He helped me understand how to execute a solid wrestling match. Danny was the first guy to trust my skills to call a match. But over my career, I'd say I'd call 99% of my matches. Even when I was just starting out, guys would be calling stuff to me in the ring, and I couldn't hear them. They'd be calling some spots to me. Uh, kid, uh, one tackle, hip toss, drop down, hip toss, arm drag. And I'd say, what? They'd have to call it to me two or three times so I could understand it. You see, I've had a hearing problem in one ear since I was a kid. It's not sports or wrestling related, but something I've had since birth. One time back in Memphis, I was working with Undertaker, who was going under the name The Punisher at the time. He told me before our match, well, we'll put over your strength in the beginning, so you'll grab a headlock. We talked about it for maybe one minute. So we go out in the ring, and he was trying to call me a spot. He was making a sha 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 noises, so the fans didn't know what he was saying. He was telling me, okay, kid, one tackle, sha sha sha, drop down, sha sha sha, hip toss, sha sha. I said, what? So I had to say it all over again. I said what about three times, and after that third time, here it came. Bing, bam, boom, he just hammered me. He couldn't get any high spots out of me, so he just beat me up. I guess I did have a disability coming in, and that's why I learned how to call a match early on. That way, I was the guy talking in the ring, and I didn't have to listen to anybody. I talked, and they listened. When I first went to Memphis, the wrestlers there were beating the crap out of everybody from Texas, including me, on a regular basis. After two months of working with all those guys, guys beating me with leather straps and all that, I decided that it wasn't getting me what I wanted. Finally, after a few months of starving in Tennessee, the bookers in charge suggested a storyline that would send me back to Dallas. I was going to turn heel, become a wrestling villain, and go up against my mentor and teacher, gentleman Chris Adams. I came back to the Dallas USWA group, and Chris Adams and I had a great storyline put together. I had been a babyface, a fan favorite all this time in Texas, but I was going to turn heel against Adams. It was the old teacher versus pupil story that has been utilized in our business so often over the years. The way it started out, I was Chris Adams' friend, former student and tag team partner, and I was returning to Dallas to help him. We got over with the fans and got cheered. Then out of the blue, I turned heel on him. That came as a real shock to the Dallas fans. After a lot of buildup, I beat Adams a few times on TV. I was the cocky ex-student gone bad, and then there was Chris, who was over with the fans to a pretty good degree. Chris Adams technically wasn't the greatest worker in the world, but he did have a lot of great ideas for the business. When it came time for heat, he'd let me get all the heat in the world. And when it came time to win the right matches, he'd have me win the right matches. He was unselfish when it came to business and drawing money. Also, it was a natural deal to promote a school. And we didn't have all the top talent, so our little bogus program was one of the big drawing cards at the time in Dallas. It sold tickets. Man, we did some great business. It was a believable story. Real life, real issues. Then Chris Adams suggested adding a couple of women to our ongoing storyline. He wanted his real-life wife, Tony, to be on his side and his ex-wife, Jeannie, to be on mine. 
Hey, how could you go wrong with two good-looking blonde women getting involved in catfights all the time? So we brought those two women out there, and boobs were flying everywhere. They were pulling hair and rolling around. Man, that was some hot stuff. It doesn't get any better than that. I remember the first time I was introduced to Jeannie. I was talking to Tony, Chris's current wife, and as we were talking, she said, Have you met Jeannie? There she is right there. I had seen Jeannie before, but I never actually met her. Jeannie had beautiful hair, beautiful eyes, and a great figure, but I didn't think much of her at the time. I often don't like people when I first meet them, and I didn't like Jeannie at all. DTA, you know. Don't trust anybody. At that time, I had some misgivings about bringing the women into the storyline, but we did the storyline with the women, and of course, everything snowballed from there. Before long, Jeannie and I weren't just an item in the ring. We became an item outside the ring, too. After I turned heel on Chris Adams in the ring, I seemed cocky and arrogant to the fans who remembered me as a nice kid, so much so that they really began to hate me. My feud with Adams was one of the things that helped draw the houses at the Sportatorium at the time. The Dallas and Memphis USWA organizations were a great experience for me, but eventually it became time to move on. I needed to make more money and to continue my wrestling education. Jeannie and I started seeing each other more seriously and became a couple pretty quick. That's when I got a call from World Championship Wrestling. When I moved to Atlanta from Dallas to work for the Turner-owned WCW, I continued to watch as much wrestling on TV as I could because I was, and still am, a huge wrestling fan. It was on Atlanta Channel 69 that I began to see Steve Russell on a regular basis. Obviously, he had a good athletic look, but what impressed me most was his engine. He was in perpetual motion, it seemed. A buzzsaw without brakes. I always thought that if this guy could learn to do a promo, could learn to talk, he could be special. I spread his name around the WCW offices and spoke to the higher-ups about this kid. It's funny, when older wrestlers are asked to consider new talent, they usually resist. The old-timers never go away gracefully, it seems, when they ascend to the coveted office job many have sought for years. Magnum T.A., who had been severely injured in a car accident that cut short a very promising wrestling career, did listen and made the call to Steve about joining us in Atlanta. Old Magnum, ever the ladies' man, liked British-speaking Jeannie's voice, and her 8x10s weren't bad either, so we ended up with two new talents instead of one. WCW hired Steve, though I don't think they ever really knew what to do with him. But the same can be said, I suppose, about many wrestlers during the Turner era. I first saw one of those wrestling businesses inside our newsletters, which are also known as kayfabe sheets or dirt sheets, back in 1989 or 90. Somebody wrote something good about me in one of those insider newsletters. Grizzly Smith, an agent for WCW, who was the father of Jake the Snake Roberts, sat down one day and read about this rookie from down in world class who was doing pretty well and then went to USWA. It was me, of course, that he was reading about. Word got to Dusty Rhodes, who had been a popular wrestler in his days and was booking talent for WCW, and Dusty Rhodes called Tom Pritchard about me. One day, when we were riding down the road, Tom said, Hey, Steve. I think WCW is interested in you. Let me give Dusty Rhodes a call for you. This was in 1991. 
I'd been in the business for two years, and I was thinking, wow. I knew that WCW would give me the chance to earn more than a few hundred dollars a month. A lot more. WCW was owned by Ted Turner, who was a big wrestling fan, and the shows were televised all over the world on Superstation TBS. That was before WCW was sold to WWE in 2001. I didn't know this at the time, but Jim Ross had mentioned my name to Dusty several times also, having seen my work in Dallas. I was flown to CNN Center in Atlanta, and they stuck a contract under my face. I signed it. All that mattered to me was that I was making 75000 a year. $1,442 a week. Wow, that was great. That was way up from what I'd been making, and I ended up more than doubling my contract the next year, from 75000 to 156000 As I got into the mix at WCW, I got to work with a number of legendary wrestling names that had come from the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. When Ted Turner brought Jim Crockett promotions and turned it into WCW, he also acquired all the NWA Big Stars contracts. It was Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, the Four Horsemen, all the big nationally known names that would come through the Houston every now and then, all of whom I'd love to watch. Suddenly, I was getting to work with these guys. Nature Boy Ric Flair was a big influence on me. I didn't really ask him any questions, but he always put on a wrestling clinic anytime he was in the ring. I watched what he did in the ring, and I learned from it. I have all the respect in the world for Ric Flair. I wasn't really in any program feuds, but I really enjoyed a lot of my matches and working with certain people. One of the highlights to me was a time when I was working on a tag match on TV, me and Big Van Vader against Arn Anderson and Ric Flair. It went about 40 minutes on TV and the whole match was called in the ring, not at all discussed beforehand. I loved it. Probably the most memorable WCW event I was involved in was on May 17, 1992 at the Russell War 92 pay-per-view. It was me, Rick Rude, Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, and Larry Zbysko against Sting, Nikita Koloff, Dustin Rhodes, son of the legendary American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, and Barry Windham in a double steel cage match. I was the top hill in the stable and in the main event of a big pay-per-view show. That was the wildest damn thing I'd ever been in up to that time. Most fans think wrestlers use blood capsules to bleed in the ring. We don't. Sometimes you get hit hard way and bleed for real, or you can nick yourself with a razor blade and get it going that way. Some guys don't like to do that, but it's one of those time-honored traditions that's always been a part of our business. One thing about my character is that I've never been leery about what we call getting color, which is bleeding, if the situation calls for it. Obviously, it has a lot of drama to the match. I remember at that Russell War 92, I tackled Dustin Rhodes. I was beating on him and he looked up at me and said, good color. I said, thanks. We both had gushers that night. That was a bonding moment. I remember when Stephanie, my first daughter, was born. It happened in Atlanta, Georgia in 1992 when I was with WCW. When they let me hold our baby, that was really cool. I was someone who never, ever wanted to have kids. I love kids, but I didn't want to have any of my own. I was sure wrong in that regard, but it was cool holding my daughter one of the absolute best days of my life. Some people are a little squeamish about changing diapers and all that, but I did it all. I remember when Cassidy, my second daughter, was born in 1996. I was in the New York area on tour with the WWE. All of a sudden, I got the call that Jeannie's water had broken. The next morning, I was on the first flight back to Georgia. 
I got to the hospital, and 20 minutes later, Cassie was born. It was like she was waiting on me. I was there for only 20 minutes, and it was like, okay, she's ready, and Cassie came into the world. I caught a flight out in Russell and Pittsburgh a few hours later. I was red-eyed and tired, but I wasn't going to miss a show. I only miss shows if I'm injured. So I worked in New York, then flew to Atlanta, watched Cassie be born, flew back up to Pittsburgh and worked that night and never missed a shot. That was cool. That's the old school wrestling business. I really love both my girls. They're the best things to happen in my life. Some friends have asked me if I would let my girls get into the wrestling business. Yeah, the answer is I'd let my girls do whatever they wanted to do, and I'd support them to the nth degree. I'd rather they not get into pro wrestling, but if that was their dream, to get into pro wrestling, I'd stand behind them 100%. In February 1993, I was promised a big singles push from WCW with Harley Race as my manager. Then Harley suffered a serious injury in a boating accident. I was still flying high about having Harley as my manager when I showed up in Columbus, Georgia for a TV taping. Suddenly, I saw Brian Pillman, who I barely knew, walking up to me. Brian said, Hey, Steve, how's it going? I said, Hey, what's going on, Brian? He said, We need to think of a finishing move since we're a tag team now. I said, What are you talking about? He said, Yeah, Dusty just made us a tag team. And I went, Damn. So I went and harassed Dusty Rhodes, the booker, telling him, I was going to be with Harley Race, you know, a world champion manager. Dusty said, Yeah, baby, but we changed our mind. Now we're going to make you and Brian a tag team. Just trust me, baby. This tag has legs. So I just said, all right. In all reality, what choice did I have? I didn't argue. And Brian and I got together. That's when we came up with the Hollywood Blondes idea. We made some designs for our trunks and showed off the name. We had the star and Hollywood Blondes on the back and three stars on the front. We had a black pair and a red pair. Then Brian had jackets made. A silver leather jacket and a black and red jacket. Brian said, we got to wear some chains, and he got me a deal on one. It's got more sentimental value than anything I own. It's just a gold chain, but it's a chain that Brian got for me when we were the Hollywood Blondes. I had it ripped off one time in a fight and thrown a pretty good distance into the bushes, and I wondered if I was going to lose it. But I looked real hard and found it. I wear that chain all the time. That's the one you see around my neck on WWE television and in my photos. And Brian Pillman is right there with me. Brian Pillman and I remained friends through the years. When I got to WWE and Stone Cold was on fire and shooting to the top, Brian Pillman came to WWE too. When Bret Hart put his Canadian Hill group together, Brian's the one who made it work with his gift for gab. Whereas Bret could cut his straightforward, logical promo, here was this trash-talking, raspy voice some bitch who everybody knew could kick their asses. He always had a mouthful of words to spew at you, and he could do it with some real heavy sarcasm. When it came time to cutting promos, he paved the way for a lot of guys and certainly inspired me. Brian and I didn't talk much about his personal life or his problems. I knew that the guy was in a lot of pain from getting knocked around so much, but I didn't know how many painkillers he was taking, and I didn't know about any of the other stuff he was said to be taking. Around me, he never did any of that. At WCW and later at WWE, we always went our separate ways once we checked in at the hotel. The other stuff people talk about, Maybe I saw him take a couple of Vicodin pain pills here and there, but I didn't know how many he was eating. Cocaine? I never saw that. HGH or steroid injections? I never saw him do those either. I certainly never saw Brian smoke dope. 
It wouldn't have gelled with his personality, I think. Just hours before the WWE In Your House pay-per-view on October 5, 1997, where Brian was to have wrestled, his body was found in his hotel room. At first, many thought that it was Brian's use of drugs and alcohol that led to a fatal overdose. It was later established that he suffered from a rare genetic heart imperfection, which not only caused the early death of his father, but ultimately his own. There is no question, however, that Brian's lifestyle and use of drugs aggravated his heart condition. I got a chance to talk to someone several months ago who was having some of the same problems, and I didn't hold back when I voiced my concerns. I'll never, ever lay back and think a guy's too strong to die again. After what happened to Brian Pillman, I'm always going to voice my opinion and let the summits know straight up what I think and what he ought to be doing about it. It might not be my business to speak with someone like that, but I'll make it my business. It would have been nice if Brian could have stayed around and hit a big chunk of change. He made decent money, but he never got to hit the big money. That's why it's so important to me to wear the gold chain that Brian gave me. If I'm wearing it, then Brian is right there with me. I sure miss that raspy voice, Hell Razor. He was a great friend. When WCW teamed the combustible and charismatic Brian Pillman with the wrestling machine named Stunning Steve Austin, I thought that there was finally some sanity on the 12th floor of the CNN Center and that perhaps the company was actually going to build for the future and develop some new stars. Pillman and Austin felt like money to me. Both had athletic skills, passion, and a thirst to get over. But this duo never really got the opportunity I felt they should have. I can't tell you exactly why, other than the normal wrestling politics that many of us have seen and personally experienced over the years. It's not a flattering side of our business, though I'm pretty sure office politics exist in most business environments. For whatever reason, the office half-assed it with the Hollywood Blondes, which resulted in Brian and Steve falling off the main event level where the money is. Perhaps management didn't know how to market these two new generation talents. This was a very frustrating time for Steve, and I'm sure many guys in his position would have said to hell with it. But he didn't. He hung in there and persevered. Austin would not quit. But that didn't keep him from getting fired by WCW. WCW sent me on a wrestling tour of Japan. It was a three-week tour that included me, Arn Anderson, Ron Simmons, also known as Farouk in WWE, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and a couple of other guys, all great workers. On the third night of the three-week tour, I jumped off the ropes to give a guy a splash. A simple, stupid splash. Unfortunately, he moved and I landed wrong on my right arm and tore my right tricep muscle off my elbow. I ended up wrestling for two and a half weeks with a torn tricep and a sore knee, which I don't recommend to anyone, but I didn't miss a single show. After I got back to the U.S. and went and got all the medical exams, the doctor told me how bad it was. The next day, I was in surgery getting my tricep reattached to my elbow. Soon afterward, I got a phone call from Janie Engel, who worked as Eric Bischoff's assistant. Bischoff, a former announcer, was running WCW for Ted Turner at the time. Janie said, Hey, Steve, give Eric a call when you get a chance. I gave Eric a call and got put on hold. 
Then he picked up the line and said, Steve, it's Eric. I said, what's going on, Eric? He said, I just want to let you know that based on the amount of money that we're paying you and based on the number of days you've been incapacitated, we're going to exercise our right to terminate the agreement. I thought about it for a second and said, well, basically you're telling me I'm fired, right? Fired from my contract, which is bringing me $300,000 a year at the time. And he said, yeah. And I said, I got fired by WCW. He actually told me that I'd never amount to anything, and then he fired me. I'll never forget that day. At the time, it wasn't much fun. But looking back, it actually turned out to be one of the best days of my career. I have told Eric Bischoff several times since he joined WWE that one of the best things he ever did while he ran WCW was to fire Austin because we would end up signing Steve and the rest is history. Eric did many good things managing WCW, especially when you consider the success of Monday Nitro. That was great competition, which made both companies work smarter and more aggressively. Actually, Eric is not the first boss to fire a talent who went on to become a star, and he won't be the last. I'm just happy that Bischoff pulled the trigger prematurely on the unmarketable guy with the short black boots and black tights. After I was fired by Eric Bischoff, just about the time that my tricep was getting well enough for me to think about doing some things, Paul E. Dangerously, or Paul Heyman, the guy who had managed me in WCW, called me up out of the blue. He was running ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, a small but popular group in Philadelphia. It had a cult following that loved ECW's violent and hardcore style. Anyway, he called me and said, Hey man, why don't you come up here and work for us? I said, Paul, my arm's still messed up. I can't wrestle just yet. He said, that doesn't matter. Come on up and we can cut some promos. You'll just talk. I'll pay you $500 a show. I was thinking, he's going to pay me 500 bucks a night just to cut promos? Hell man, I'm in. Andy gave me an opportunity and a platform to vent all the years of frustration that had been built up from WCW. The interview skills I later used in WWE were actually developed and refined during my short stint with ECW. I wasn't stunning Steve anymore. I had cut my hair off when I was in WCW. I was in the process of growing it back. It was medium length, almost on my red neck again. My gimmick there was that I was now coming out of WCW, which was a much bigger organization than ECW, so I was, of course, a superstar. They called me the extreme superstar Steve Austin. People were watching that ECW stuff and seeing what I was doing since I was fired from WCW. It was outrageous stuff and a lot of fun to do while I was healing up. I was only there a few months. I cut scathing, sarcastic promos on WCW and on Bischoff. I also did bad impersonations of Hulk Hogan. It was a lot of funny stuff, but I was learning how to cut promos and my character became more defined. JR, who was watching my stuff in ECW late Saturday nights on the MSG network from his home in Connecticut, was just getting started in the WWE Talent Relations Department. He was a major factor in getting Vince to think about me in a positive way. And sure enough, one day, my kitchen phone rang. I was still in an arm cast, living in a log house in Georgia. It was Vince McMahon, the most powerful figure on the face of the wrestling planet. Vince had an idea for me. I used to stay up late on Saturday nights in Connecticut and watch Paul Heyman's ECW Wrestling on the MSG network. 
When Paul picked Steve up for a few shots after Steve was canned from WCW, I saw a side of Steve that I had not seen on TV before. He was cutting promos that were unbelievably entertaining and thought-provoking. It was as if he meant every word he said, and for the most part, at the time, he did. Steve was angry about being fired. He was injured. He had a family to take care of, and he was only making about $500 a week instead of the 6000 or so he was pulling down with WCW. He was wounded in a variety of ways, and he began expressing it. Paul Heyman gave Austin the forum to speak his mind on ECW television, and Eric Bischoff provided Steve with the motivation. Interesting what has to happen in someone's life to allow him to get where he wants to be. Both Kevin Nash and I spoke to Vince McMahon about Steve. Steve was looked at as a very solid in-ring hand, but lacking in charisma. That was the book on Austin at that point in time. Obviously, not enough people in our office were watching Steve raise hell on ECW television programming. Steve was hired by WWE because he could wrestle, because he could work with anyone and have a good, solid match. He was hired to be a mechanic, which meant that he would never go higher than the Intercontinental title. I want to say something at this point about my good buddy Jim J.R. Ross. Ever since he helped bring me to Vince McMahon's attention and opened up a door for me at WWE, he's been one of my best friends. I remember J.R. from WCW. I used to talk to him back then, but we weren't really friends the way we are now. I always thought he knew I was a hard worker and that he appreciated that. But he had different duties back then. J.R. has helped me a lot with my character, too. He doesn't put sugar on everything. He tells it like it is. If he agreed with everything I want to do, his opinion would not be worth so much to me. Jarrell was to be very instrumental in my career after I got to WWE, and I sure do appreciate it. I just wish the hard-headed Oki would slow down a little and smell the barbecue sauce. Hello? Steve, how you doing? It's Vince McMahon. Hi, Vince. How you doing? Good, pal. Listen, I got an idea for you. Tell me what you think. I want to bring you into WWE as somebody called the Ringmaster. You know, like the Master of the Ring. I was thinking it'd sound like a damn circus act. Ringmaster? But remember, I'd been fired from WCW by Eric Bischoff and hadn't worked in several months other than making my $500 a night one night a week. So I said, well, okay. Try not to sound reluctant or apprehensive. So I became the Ringmaster. Hey, I had to start somewhere, didn't I? One of the guys who helped me when I started wrestling for WWE was Jack Lanza, a road agent for the company. A road agent is a guy who helps run a show and helps the talent come up with interesting ways to entertain a crowd. They're also there to help newer talent learn the business. Road agents in WWE report to either JR or Vince. Some agents specialize in different things, so being a road agent can mean many things, but they all help do something backstage with the talent. Since they're all ex-wrestlers, they have knowledge and experience to pass on. They've been in almost every situation. These are all guys Vince can trust with his business. When I got hot later in my career with WWE, Jack would be one of the guys I'd turn to for advice. Nine times out of ten, he'd be the agent for my matches. And he's another guy who I'd go to if I had a problem. He was a father figure to me. Jack had done it all and had great advice when it came to ring psychology and stuff like that. 
Time was going by and I started thinking, this ringmaster name just ain't cutting it. It sucks. I was getting it done in the ring, but my gimmick was lame as hell. The ringmaster had no upside. I felt it, but more importantly, the fans felt it too. I had to change my in-ring persona. Something had to give. Oh, hell yeah. Steve was a wrestling heel, as it's known in the business. A wrestling heel is a great guy to have on your cards. A guy who can work with virtually anyone and will always give you a great effort. In the old days of WWE, Steve would have been a setup man. In other words, he would have lost to the babyfaces who were going to wrestle in the main event the next time the group was in town. The setup man historically lacked the proper amount of charisma to propel himself to the next level, the main events. I think this was how Steve was viewed when he wrestled as the ringmaster. I booked Steve with the incomparable Shawn Michaels because I wanted to see how Steve would do in a main event level match with a world-class opponent. I can remember road agent Jack Lanza telling me that the matches Sean and Steve had were priceless and had to be seen to be believed. I think this series of matches helped get Steve noticed as the feedback to Vince was positive and intriguing. Maybe we were on to something after all. I was still living in Atlanta while I was working with WWE and I was watching TV one night and a documentary about the Iceman, a serial killer for hire named Richard Kuklinski came on. I saw something in this psycho that I could use in my in-ring presentation. I could, as perverse as it sounds, relate to this animal. I pitched my concept to Debbie Bonanzio, Senior Vice President of WWE Creative Services. She was in charge of gimmick characterization, and they started faxing me pages and pages of names. But the names just weren't working. They were all temperature-based things like Fang McFrost, Ivan the Terrible, Ice Dagger, you know, names like that. The names were horrible. Our creative group did not feel my new character idea. I was thinking, man, they don't understand where I'm coming from on this. So I got frustrated as hell. Then one day, I was just sitting there in the kitchen, thinking about the name thing. Jeannie, my second ex-wife, who happens to be English, of course, drank hot tea. Knowing how frustrated I was, she made me a cup. Ah, she said, putting the hot tea down in front of me. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and drink your tea before it gets stone cold. Then she paused, with his light in her eyes, and said, That's your new name, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I was thinking, Oh, hell yeah. And they just started introducing me that way. There was no big build-up or explanation or anything like that. There were no vignettes or interviews to provide some background on this cold-blooded guy. The name just started catching on, and I was Stone Cold Steve Austin from Victoria, Texas. But I still wasn't really going anywhere. I had the name, but no one knew how I'd gotten so cold-blooded. I had to get this thing kick-started somehow. Austin 316 all came about at the King of the Ring pay-per-view on June 23, 1996, when WWE announcer Doc Hendricks, Michael P.S. Hayes, formerly a fabulous freebird, told me in the locker room that Jake the Snake Roberts was going to cut a religious promo on me. In my first tournament elimination match at King of the Ring, I got kicked in the mouth pretty badly by Mark Merrow. 
After I beat him, I had to go to the emergency room and get stitched up. This was going on while Jake Roberts was wrestling Big Van Vader. I came back to the arena right away, never missing a beat, and got ready for my match against Jake, who had won his match. My injury just made me more intense, because I was already booked to win the match, but I had to be there to do it. When I did my infamous 316 promo after winning King of the Ring, that was a strong-ass promo and none of that stuff was scripted. At the time Doc Hendricks stuck that mic in my face, he had no idea what I was going to say and neither did Vince, JR, or the guys in the TV truck. It all just came out. I remember the promo went something like this. The first thing I want to be done is get that piece of crap, Jake Roberts, of course, out of my ring. Don't just get him out of the ring, get him out of the WWE, because I've proven, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Because I've proved, son, without a shadow of a doubt, you ain't got what it takes anymore. You sit there and you thump your Bible and you say your prayers and it didn't get you anywhere. Talk about your Psalms, talk about John 3.16. Austin 3.16 says I just whipped your ass. Come on, that's not necessary. All he's got to do is go buy him a cheap bottle of Thunderbird and try to dig back some of that courage he had in his prime. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice. As the king of the ring, I'm serving notice to every one of the WWE superstars. I don't give a damn who they are. They're all on the list, and that's Stone Cold's list, and I'm fixing to start running through all of them. As far as this championship match is considered, son, I don't give a damn if it's Davey Boy Smith or Shawn Michaels. Steve Austin's time has come. Steve Austin's time has come. And when I get the shot, you're looking at the next WWE champion, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. That started off two of my trademark sayings, Austin 316 and because Stone Cold said so. It all happened that night at King of the Ring. By the next night, Austin 316 signs and posters had already started showing up in the crowd. When WWE came to me with the idea of doing a Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirt, I said, just print a black t-shirt with his plain white lettering. Put Austin 316 on the front and a skull on the back with Stone Cold written on it. That t-shirt probably outsold any shirt in the history of wrestling. I kept my hair short at that time, but I wasn't happy with it thinning out more as time went on. I did my 316 debut with Jake Roberts at King of the Ring with very short hair, but the sudden change in my demeanor called for a few adjustments in the way I looked. Stone Cold Steve Austin needed some new visuals. Then I saw Woody Harrelson with his shaved head and natural born killers and that was it. I decided to just completely shave my head smooth. I grew a beard and a mustache and recreated myself as a whole new persona. I looked Stone Cold and I felt Stone Cold. I tell young wrestlers that they must always be thinking about their TV character and word down the WWE creative team with their ideas for that character. And above all else, they have to develop a positive working relationship with Vince. Vince is the engine that runs the WWE machine. If he doesn't understand or feel your character, you might as well do something else for a living. Vince was raised as a true North Carolina redneck, and I think the Stone Cold character took him back to his roots and the people he'd run across. He was given the character his support. 
and Austin 316 was about to explode. Even after Steve Austin slapped us in the face with his controversial persona after defeating Jake Roberts to become the king of the ring, I still don't think we really knew what we had. He was essentially slated to be Ringmaster Plus, the wrestling heel who could work with anyone and make them look good. But it was thought that he lacked the verbal skills to connect with the audience. Well, that changed when Steve did his promo with Michael Hayes. A new star was born. The merchandise king had arrived, complete with his seemingly endless string of catchphrases that did nothing but make money for all involved. These phrases were just natural extensions of Steve's basic personality. He isn't an actor. He is a wrestler with passion. As ringmaster, my finishing hold had been the Million Dollar Dream, which was my manager Ted DiBiase's finish, a submission-type hold also known in the business as the Cobra Clutch. After I came up with the Stone Cold Steve Austin gimmick, I was still using that finish. It was okay. It was starting to get over with the fans. But one day at a TV taping in Fayetteville, North Carolina, I remember Michael Hayes came walking up to me and said, Hey, kid, come here. You got a second? I said, yeah. He said, I've been trying to think of a good finish for you. You know, that Cobra Clutch deal is okay, but if you do this other finish, it'd be better. And he showed me what he was talking about. Wrestler Johnny Ace, who now works with JR in talent relations, was doing a version of it in Japan. Called it an Ace Crusher. Hayes said, it's different from Ace's finish because you put the guy's chin on your shoulder, jump up, and then you land on your ass. We got some of the local wrestlers together in the ring and said, hey, you guys mind helping us with this? So I started practicing the stunt of that day. I did it about six times, and Hayes says, pretty cool, huh? I said, yeah, I like it. I started using the stunner as my finishing hole that day, and JR called it the Stone Cold Stunner. I was thinking of something else, but that was a perfect name for my new finisher. It said it all. Thanks, JR. I've pretty much always been real shy. I don't know why. I got along well with people and was polite to everyone, but to this day, I'm extremely private. I have very few true friends. I have acquaintances or whatever, but they aren't a whole lot of people I hang out with even if I've lived somewhere for a long time. One of the catchphrases I used in WWE in the late 90s was don't trust anyone, or DTA. That comes from my experience in the wrestling business and from being shafted along the way. It comes from being manipulated and watching the political scenes as an outsider. But my DTA anthem did add to the mystique of Stone Cold's character. My character's personality was as solid as stone, which is more than I could say for my personal life. About this time, I got a call from the government telling me that they had audited my back taxes for some reason. It turned out that Jeannie had turned me on to some incompetent accountant, and I was $360,000 in debt to the U.S. government for back taxes. I never, ever did anything wrong. I never tried to screw the IRS. Everything I did was on time, and I never even had to file an extension. I just sent the tax guys my forms and stuff like that, and I didn't know they were making up these bogus figures. But all of a sudden... Steve Williams owed the IRS $360,000. Hey, when I screw up, I take responsibility for my actions. But for once, this wasn't my fault. I had no idea how I was going to pay off that kind of debt. I thought I'd be making payments to Uncle Sam for the rest of my life. 
I lost a lot of sleep thinking about that. A couple of days later, Jeannie called me and said, let's meet at the service station. I met her, and she said she wanted to get separated. Soon we were divorced. Shortly after my divorce from Jeannie, I was a guest on the Howard Stern radio show in New York. I told Howard I'd probably never get married again. I think the thing that I enjoyed the most about being on the show was being able to laugh about a few things and maybe get them off my chest. Even at a time that I wasn't so happy to go out on national media, it was very refreshing. Kind of like therapy for me. I always have a good time with Howard because there's no pre-show interview. On most other shows, a production assistant calls you a couple days in advance and asks you a bunch of questions to be talked about on the show. It's so lame. The show day comes and you go on and you and the host just go through the motions. Ah, how fun. But with Howard, it's flying by the seat of your pants, the way I like it. Had a real good time on Howard's show, and I liked Howard. I think I could hang out with that guy. We'd just sit there and talk. And he's a different person when he's off the air, like I'm a different person when I'm off the air. Same guy, just turned down a notch. I've always liked going on his show. It ain't like any other radio show in this whole country. I'm so Texas, and he's so New York, it just kind of works. I remember my first WrestleMania with crystal clarity. It was WrestleMania 12 on March 31st, 1996 at the Arrowhead Pond in Anaheim, California. I'd never been to WrestleMania before, so I'd never seen anything like it. It was just amazing to be part of such a show, the Super Bowl and the World Series of our business. A year later, it was a different story. I was getting a lot better in front of the camera. I loved doing my programs with Bret Hart in 1996 and 1997 when he made his comeback. I was handpicked by Brett to work with him at Madison Square Garden. I was real proud of that. Then we booked our big match for March 23rd, 1997 at WrestleMania 13 at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois. It put him over as a heel for being such a crybaby. I think that match at WrestleMania 13 was my favorite ever. I cut some great promos on Brett. Brett, you're sitting out there whining and crying because you're a loser. I tried to come out and help you win the title. It could have been you and me going for it all at WrestleMania, but you blew the whole damn thing because you're a loser. Well, Brett, at WrestleMania 13, you will say, I quit. And someday it will be you and me for the championship, and I will be the next WWE champion. When that match was being built up for WrestleMania 13, I was blind to my becoming a babyface. I didn't see it coming. I wasn't looking to be a babyface at all when we had that match. But the fans' cheers were outweighing their booze at the time. Everyone was telling me I'm a babyface. Brian Pillman came up to me and said, Hey man, you're a babyface now. I said, No, I'm not. He grinned and said, Yeah, you're a babyface with a smart-ass delivery, as only Brian could deliver. He said, Steve's a babyface. Steve's a babyface. I said, Screw you. I said, No, I'm not. I'm a damn heel. I was starting to get hot. And he said, Listen to the fans. You're a freaking babyface. A damn white meat baby face. So I started listening to the crowd. And at that match, I got almost as loud a cheer as Bret Hart did. That told me something. I was hot at the time, and Austin 316 and Castone Cole said so were going strong. But that match at WrestleMania 13 really locked it in for me. It put Stone Cold Steve Austin square in the middle of the pro wrestling map. It was a quality wrestling match. A match of the year, according to some people. I don't think that's an exaggeration either. At WrestleMania 14, which was held on March 28, 1998 at the Fleet Center in Boston, I won my first WWE championship 
by defeating the incomparable Shawn Michaels. Owen Hart was Bret Hart's younger brother. I enjoyed Owen's company, but we weren't running buddies. My match with Owen was set for SummerSlam 1997 on August 3rd, 1997 at the Meadowlands Continental Airlines Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. By then, Stone Cold was really catching fire with the fans. I was told that I was going to win the Intercontinental title belt back from Owen on that night. The stipulation to my challenge was that if I couldn't beat him and win, I was going to have to kiss his ass. We really built that up on TV as a major deal. It was another simple, easy-to-understand storyline. So the day came, and I was talking to Owen in the back, and we were throwing a few things together for the finish of the title match. I said to him, well, what if we do that thing where I come in for the elbow and you rotate your back around and pick me up upside down and give me the tombstone pile driver? Then you cover me and I'll kick out right before the three count. I added, now Owen, I don't trust just anybody to do a pile driver to me, but you can do it, right? And he said, yeah. I said, you're going to go to your knees, right? And he said, no, I'm going to drop to my ass. Then I said, well, you need to go to your knees, right? And he said, no, I dropped to my ass. That's two times I said that. And I was thinking, I'm dealing with Owen Hart, brother of Bret Hart and son of Stu Hart. I guess he knows what he's doing. He's ribbing me about dropping to his ass instead of his knees. Owen was a hell of a technician. When he assured me I'd be okay, I took his word that I'd be okay. I didn't think twice about it. I had mentioned my concerns to him twice, but in an inverted tombstone pile driver done the way Undertaker does, it's always going to the knees, not the ass. So I figure, Owen's got it. He knows my concern. I'd asked him twice about it, and that was the big spot in the match. When I came out that night, boy, people were ready to see Stone Cold Steve Austin do the Stone Cold Stunner on Owen for the title belt. The match went along, and it was a good match. The right style of match for that year. It was a solid wrestling match. We were going through some things near the end that could be finishes, but they weren't. The crowd was really into all the false finishes. Eventually, we set up the pile driver spot. I spun Owen around, and he landed on his feet. Then he picked me up, upside down, and wham! Dropped straight to his ass. There was simply no room for me to protect my head. I weighed 250. He weighed 225 or thereabouts at the time. But with the jump up and the impact down, man, I got spiked headfirst in the mat hard as hell. That's one of the things that's going to turn you into a quadriplegic quicker than anything. It's called actual load. It's not a whiplash thing, but a major impact blow to the spinal cord. Boom. I remember kind of picking my head up from the mat and telling the referee, Earl Hebner, tell him not to fucking touch me, I can't move. Earl got up and told Owen, don't touch him, he can't move. I said, tell him to buy me some time. Earl told him that. So Owen started chanting to the crowd, now he's going to have to kiss my ass. He was buying me the time I needed to recover. A minute or a minute and a half went by, and I finally started getting a little bit of feeling back in my limbs. My shoulders and my anterior delts were on fire. It took everything I had to bend my legs and try to get into a crawl position, but I couldn't crawl on my hands because I couldn't use my hands yet. Still, we had to get to the finish, and I had to win. So I was crawling around on my elbows, and I told the referee, roll up for the win. He told Owen what I'd called, and the next thing that happened was I did the worst-looking roll-up in wrestling history because I couldn't use my limbs. Somehow I managed to hold Owen on his back and get a three-count out of it. 
I meant for that to be the end of it, but Owen kicked right out after three. Why? To make himself look strong like he was barely beat. That kick out hurt me like hell, too, and could easily have injured my neck further. I should have lain there and gotten medical attention, but it didn't happen that way. It was one of those deals where it was a highly anticipated match. There were a lot of 316 shirts out there that night. A whole lot of Stone Cold fans. All the referees came out to the ring, and it took three of them to pull me to my feet. I got my arms around them, and they tried to hold me up and hand me the title belt, but my legs were dragging, and I could barely walk. I got to the back, and I was visibly shaken. The whole thing just scared the crap out of me. As they got me onto a stretcher, I just wanted to know what the hell had happened. They took me to the hospital for x-rays, and I was released. I bought myself a 12-pack of beer, laid in bed at the hotel, and finally went to sleep. Despite everything, I got up the next day and drove to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania to do Raw and cut a promo on Owen because I'm Stone Cold Steve Austin. My delts were burning like crazy and I couldn't wrestle, but I went and covered my ass on TV. Here's what I said to Owen Hart the next night on Raw is War. Owen Hart, I'm not going to listen to the doctors. I'm not going to wear this piece of crap they gave me, this stupid neck brace. The fact that you dropped me on my head don't mean a damn thing to me. The fact of the matter was, you were too stupid to cover me when you had the chance. The bottom line is, you're a loser, Owen Hart. Not because I say you are, but because it runs through your veins, because your mom and dad gave that to you, and I can't do nothing about that. Tonight, I truly will open up a can of whoop-ass and show you exactly what Austin 316 means. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. The next few days, I went and got a bunch of doctor's reports. Every doctor I went to said to get out of wrestling. The muscles in my hand were starting to atrophy, and my legs were becoming hyper-reflexive and jumpy, and muscles would start pulsing in my back. The medical name for my condition was central cord compression. But I was told that I could get some relief from surgery, so I set out to find a doctor who could do it. Then I met Dr. Lloyd Youngblood. He's a neurosurgeon, the best of the best. I didn't have an appointment, but he spent three hours with me discussing my problem in language I could understand. So I got the big operation in 1999, a full two years after the pile driver. It was two years of nagging pain. At that point, I didn't know if I was going to be able to come back or not. I had no idea if I was ever going to get back in the ring. If I'd had to venture a guess, I would have guessed that my wrestling career was over. After Steve had his neck surgery in San Antonio with Dr. Youngblood, I flew down there to see him in the hospital. I think when I got there, Steve had been able to get a night's sleep, and when I walked in, he was sitting up in bed eating ice cream. I told him I thought only kids who had their tonsils removed got ice cream in the hospital, but he said he had connections. Boy, did he. You would have thought that it was Elvis or John Wayne himself in the hospital there in Texas, because all the nurses and other personnel were just great and truly felt it was an honor to attend to their homegrown wrestling star. Steve always has been able to connect with his audience, and he had already won all the nurses over in the short time he had been hospitalized. There were a bunch of Austin 316 fans working in that hospital, let me tell you. He was in amazingly good spirits because many of the horrible symptoms that he had been experiencing with his neck injury were gone. He had found some significant relief, even though 
he still had some numbness in his hand and fingers. But Steve knew, and I knew, that he would have to address his wrestling career sooner than later. If Deborah had not been there, we probably would have talked about it, but we didn't. That was probably a smart thing, but I could tell by the look in his eyes that he had unfinished business to attend to. The thing was, neither of us knew when it would happen. Anyway, I had the surgery and it went fine. I got level three and four fused together. It took close to a year, but Dr. Youngblood finally gave me the clearance to get back in the ring. Owen Hart never called me after he piled drove me and injured me. I heard that his brother Brett kept telling him to call me, but we never connected. Did I hate Owen? No, that's just the business and we weren't really friends to start with. Did I want to work with him after that? No, I didn't. I didn't want to do business with him again. Right or wrong, that's how I felt. Sometimes I wonder how it could have happened. As good a technical wrestler as Owen was, he should have known that he needed to drop to his knees, not his ass, to protect my neck. When he didn't call me at my house afterwards, that kind of pissed me off a little bit. It was like, hey, if I damn near paralyzed someone, I'd be calling them every damn day of the week. The WWE merchandise department came out with a t-shirt that said Owen 316, and on the back it said, I just broke your neck. Uh, I thought that was pretty damn cheesy. If I was going to get any of the royalties off that one, maybe I would have liked it better. But if he's going to put the money in his pocket for messing my life up, I wasn't real fond of that. Anyway, it was just one of those things, and I'm still paying for it now. That's the way it goes in the wrestling business. It ain't ballet. Things happen. And that time it happened to me. But I ain't going to sit here and cry about it. I just deal with it. Every single day. And I will continue to deal with it for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, Owen had a freak accident on May 23, 1999, when he accidentally fell over 40 feet from an overhead catwalk to the ring and died immediately from the fall. No one deserves to die like that. That was bad, and I felt sad for Owen's family, his wife, and his children. I'm really sorry, and was always sorry, that Owen Hart died. Honestly, I was surprised that they were even doing a tombstone pile driver, because no one does it better than The Undertaker. It's one of the dead man's signature moves. Wrestlers usually don't, or shouldn't, use other talents' finishing moves for their own high spots, but that's another story for another time. My take on this incident was this. Owen was a good person and a hell of a wrestler. He was born into wrestling royalty in my eyes as the youngest son of the legendary tough guy and longtime promoter, Stu Hart. I always felt that Owen may have thought that he had let his family down, specifically his dad and older brother, Brett, with a poorly executed maneuver. It would be like the son of Michael Jordan being cut from his basketball team. It just wasn't supposed to happen. But it did, and I think Owen was so taken aback by what happened that he never cleared the air with Steve. I will guarantee you one thing. Owen cared, and I know he felt bad about what happened because we used to discuss it often. When Steve was out of commission because of the neck injury, Owen used to ask me about Steve all the time. I would say to him, why don't you call him? 
Owen's response was always along the lines of, I'm going to, or I will, I just feel so bad about what I did. Steve and Owen never had the conversation they needed to have, the conversation both men felt in their hearts before Owen's untimely death. It's one face-to-face -face meeting I wish I could have orchestrated. During this time, I really started making some big money with WWE. Then it kind of skyrocketed due to the popularity of Stone Cold with both merchandise and wrestling revenues going up. I was finally able to write the Internal Revenue Service a check for the $360,000 that I owed them. Other than my daughters being born, paying that debt off to the government was one of the greatest moments of my life. I thought I would be in debt up to my neck for a very long time. I first met Deborah when she came to the WWE from WCW. She was born and raised in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and she was gorgeous. I liked a lot of things about her, especially her extremely strong will. We moved in together in 2000. Soon we would be married in the Little White Chapel in Las Vegas. I went on Howard Stern's show and I told him I was getting married to Deborah. Man, did Howard rag me on that, talking about getting prenups and warning me about what I was getting into. Two years later, the incident at the house happened. The police were called and it got national media attention. You can talk about it, read about it, and discuss it, but I can't. Legal reasons. Then we got divorced, which I can't give details on that either. There's a gag order. All I can say is I truly regret the whole ordeal. Anyway, Deborah is a complete sweetheart. It was one of those situations that just didn't work out. We loved each other. We still communicate, and if she ever needs my help down the road, I would help her in a heartbeat. I appeared in 10 episodes of the CBS show Nash Bridges as a character named Jake Cage in 1999 and 2000. Originally, I was supposed to do just a bit part on one episode, but they kept bringing me back in a recurring role. Don Johnson was really cool to me. He really knew who was in control of the set when he walked in. That was his set. He was a top babyface and a booker. He laid down the law with a lot of people, but he treated me like gold. If somebody spoke to me in a negative way, he'd get on her ass because you weren't going to talk down to Steve Austin. They were going to be very nice to me, so he took really good care of me, and I appreciated that. And of course, anybody from Texas is a Cheech and Chong fan, so Cheech Marin was real cool to me. He had a son about 14 years old who was a big wrestling fan, so I got along great with him. CBS offered me a series the next year based on the Jake Cage character, but of course it wasn't something I could do. I was still hotter than a firecracker with the WWE. It wasn't time to get out of this game yet. Plus, what I would make on a TV show wasn't even close to what I was going to make at WWE. Sports entertainment definitely paid me more money than I was going to make playing Jake Cage. But I'll tell you, I did enjoy doing the Nash Bridges. The absolute highlight of my wrestling career was an extended three-and-a-half-year feud with my boss, the owner of WWE, Vince McMahon. It is said by many that we had the most talked-about rivalry in the history of sports entertainment. Based on today's mass media, cable, and satellite penetration, that's probably true. We went at each other in so many bizarre scenarios that newer fans might wonder, how in the world did all that start? I was doing things that blue-collar and even white-collar people could identify with. It was stuff they would have liked to do themselves. I was standing up to my boss and doing crap to him, and I was getting away with it, which was why I think it was so universally accepted. It was Vince's vision and Steve's talent and passion that made their rivalry work so well. This was classic old-school wrestling in my eyes.
the hero who the fans believed in and supported passionately, and the villain who the fans loved to hate, and who the fans would pay good money to see get his ass kicked. Simple booking, wrestling 101. But man, did it work. The defiant hero and the dictatorial boss battled it out seemingly every Monday night. It was episodic TV at its finest. Vince's dad was a great man who did not want his son and namesake to even get into the wrestling business, much less become an in-ring performer. But I think Vince always had a burning desire to perform. When he became Mr. McMahon, the chairman of the WWE, he found his true calling, in my opinion. As great as Steve was during his run, there is no way that he would have been as successful as he was without a great heel to play off of. And Mr. McMahon filled the bill perfectly. My feud with Vince began on January 18, 1998, when I faced and beat The Rock in the final match of the Royal Rumble. That victory guaranteed me a WWE Championship title shot at WrestleMania 14. Then the WWE promotional machine really started grinding. Vince always comes up with something way over the top for WrestleMania, and he didn't disappoint the fans on this occasion. To make sure the match would be fair and square, Vince brought in the notorious boxer Iron Mike Tyson, who would be the special enforcer referee. Can you imagine that? We got worldwide press coverage. That tie-in with Mike Tyson was a hell of a deal. Yeah, that was a home run, a real grand slam for the company. It was a hell of a good idea by the big Irishman. It was all good working with Mike Tyson. The first time I met Mike, he called me Cold Stone. He kept calling me that, even though we did several shows together. So I used to make him mad. I'd say to him, why you gotta call me Cold Stone? It's so damn easy. It's stone cold. At the press conference before WrestleMania, being able to sit there with Mike Tyson was really fun, and he brought in a lot of outside people. Everybody knows who Mike Tyson is. There was a tremendous crossover appeal when he came to WWE. I'm a big boxing fan, and he's a big wrestling fan, so it was cool. At one point in the press conference, he shoved me. Hard. I shoved him back, and everybody just started shoving everybody else. There were $100 bills shooting out of Mike's pockets. There was just money everywhere. He had a lot of money on him that night, thousands of dollars in cash. It was just a great piece of business. I never got one of those $100 bills, though. I have had the privilege of sitting at ringside and doing play-by-play -play for wrestling since the 70s. And I've been to a ton of big-time sporting events, but I have never experienced anything like the night that Stone Cold and Mike Tyson confronted each other in Fresno, California on Raw. Mike was, and is to this day, one of the most controversial figures ever in boxing. Mike's public image has taken a beating, but I found Mike Tyson to be a very cooperative professional who dearly loved the wrestling business and could give you chapter and verse on many of wrestling's most significant matches and stars. Mike was a huge fan as a kid growing up in the Bronx, and I would assume is still a fan to this day.
when Iron Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet, shoved the toughest SOB in WWE Stone Cold Steve Austin, it was magic, animalistic magic that I had never felt before sitting at ringside. I will always feel that night was a real launching pad for our company. And did it ever get folks talking? WrestleMania 14 finally arrived. It was an absolutely huge event that sold out Boston's Fleet Center. Despite Triple H's and China's best attempts to help Shawn Michaels win, I beat the current WWE Champion with some help from Tyson. He ended up turning on HBK, which allowed me to win the WWE title for the first time. In the context of the storyline, Vince McMahon was not pleased at all with me as the new WWE Champion. He did not like the way I made the company look with my beer drinking and colorful language and finger motions, so he did everything possible over the next year to cause me problems and to try to pry the title away from me. Stone Cold wasn't a corporate enough image is how it all began. Vince told the fans that if I won the WWE Championship, it would be a corporate nightmare. That angle had more people watching wrestling than it ever watched before. Every week Vince would try to screw me and I'd come right back with something really wild that would shock the fans and keep them coming back for more. It was Super Ego versus Super Ego. Vince tried to screw Stone Cold at every turn, but I got my revenge in some very creative ways. Nobody tells Stone Cold what to do and that's the bottom line. I filled up Vince's classic Corvette convertible with tons of concrete from a cement mixer I drove into the Nassau Coliseum. I crushed his limo with a 316 monster truck. I drove a beer truck into the arena and hosed him and his stooges down with thousands of gallons of beer. I attacked him while he was in the hospital and zapped him with those heart paddles. I brained him with a bedpan and jammed an enema gimmick up his backside. The next week, I filled up his corporate office at WWE headquarters with cow manure. A big part of my WWE career was working with Vince. For a guy who's north of 50, the chairman of WWE is a physical freak. Vince has his share of critics, and I personally butted heads with him, as has been documented. But bottom line, there's nothing Vince won't do for our business. Ever since day one, I've listened to everything that comes out of his mouth because I know how smart he is. Anything he says, I can learn from. There's a lot of things I've learned in the course of my life and my career I've forgotten about, but I can recall every conversation I've ever had with Vince McMahon what I said and what he said in return. I think the guy's a genius and a shark. He's gutsy and he goes by his instincts. He's made his mistakes, yeah, but he's a winner. Vince is still the boss, but if I have a good idea, he'll hear me out. He's always been open to listening to me. And the fact is, he's always open to listening to anybody. As smart as he is, he knows that you can always learn something from somebody else. Even if he's a damn idiot talking, he might say something you can put to good use. Vince will do anything for his product. He's put himself on the line in the ring against me many times. I think he always wanted to be a wrestler, but I don't think his dad, the successful wrestling promoter, Vincent J. McMahon, wanted him to be a wrestler. So that was that. Vince couldn't be a wrestler. His dad flat out wouldn't allow it. Vince McMahon is extremely close to being the Mr. McMahon television character, just as I'm extremely close to being the Stone Cold character. They're both one and the same. They're just turned down a few notches but they can be turned up at the flip of a switch. Mr. Man's best traits are his work ethic and his passion for this business. The guy loves making money, but I think he loves the wrestling business even more than that. 
at this point, he's got so much money, it really doesn't matter. I think the guy just loves the business. A lot of money just happens to be the byproduct of all his hard work and his passion for wrestling. But he won't allow himself to show any weaknesses, just like Stone Cold won. Vince McMahon is a name that millions of our fans worldwide boo and could call an asshole, but he's also a man I greatly respect. I used to tell my buddies near the end of my wrestling career that I was drinking beer for a living and wrestling on the side. The beer deal was the end of my act. It was how I finished what I was doing in the ring. Once fans saw the beer drinking finale, they knew the show was over. It helped me bond with the crowd. And when I did it with the other talent like The Rock or Vince, it helped me bond with them. Of course, sometimes I stunned them afterwards, but that was the beauty of Stone Cold. My battle with Vince McMahon ran from 1998 right through WrestleMania 17 in Houston's Astrodome on April 1st, 2001. Even though I was not the prototype for what you'd call the classic fan favorite, since I was going against the evil, pompous WWE owner Mr. McMahon, I was tremendously popular with the fans. It was a hell of a run, but I remember when I wanted to turn heel against The Rock at WrestleMania 17, I was looking for something big to come out of the match. I was feeling a little stale as a babyface. I felt like the Stone Cold character wasn't running on all cylinders. The storylines for me seemed to be a little weak. I wanted to shock people, which has pretty much become a tradition at WrestleMania. I wanted to do something they would talk about for a long time to come. Then it came to me. I would turn on The Rock, and better still, I would accept the help of my enemy, Vince McMahon, in beating him. All of a sudden, I would become a heel. I remember going into WrestleMania 17 in Houston and cutting my promos against The Rock. I thought I out-promoed the guy, even though Rock's stuff was awesome. My stuff was just more intense. I felt it. It was real. Going into that event, it's in the Houston Astrodome and his two top baby faces, but clearly I was the favorite with the crowd because I lived only 100 miles from there. It was home. It was Texas. I remember the end of the match. I was welling on rock with a steel chair, and then, after a hell of a series of false finishes, I pinned him one, two, three. Vince was the one who came out there and handed me that steel chair. I was about to make an audible call right there in the middle of the ring because that crowd was so hot, and I was going to turn heel that night with Mr. McMahon. I damn near just said, hey, we're not going to drink a beer together, but, and then give him a Stone Cold Stunner. The fans would have really liked that, I think, and our feud would have continued. When I look back, that's a call I wish I'd made in the ring. I wish I'd told Vince, never mind when he offered me that beer in the ring, because I'd gained so much of my edge back by the end of that match, the fans didn't give a damn about me beating the hell out of rock with that steel chair. It was a no-disqualification match, so the fans didn't care. It was a legal move. When I got the win, there was a hell of a pop. There were over 67,000 people yelling for me. What I was feeling right then was, don't turn heel. But hey, that was what we carved into stone, what we had agreed upon. So Vince and I shook hands and drank beer together in front of the fans at the Astrodome, making a lot of them mad at me. I wish I'd called it off right there in the ring. From that point, I wouldn't have been so much a tweener. It would have been back to, hey, there's that edgy stone cold. Whether he's a good guy or a bad guy or whatever, he's going to do exactly what it takes to get the job done. No friends. DTA, remember? Normally the time when babyfaces turn heel in the wrestling business is when they're at their hottest, when they're at the peak of their popularity. That's when it would make the most impact. But it seemed like the Stone Cold character transcended that logic. The fans didn't want to hate me. 
It just didn't work. Just like the fans really didn't hate The Rock at the last WrestleMania, even though he was supposed to be the heel. Vince is saying you can't beat Austin, so if you can't beat him, join him. He's still from Texas. He's still one of us. He whooped Rock's ass in a no-disqualification match, so anything goes. Steve got the draw on Rock and hit him with a chair. But Rock wouldn't have hit Steve with the chair if he'd gotten a chance. Don't think he wouldn't have. I don't know what the hell Steve's done that was so bad. Funny thing about the match between The Rock and me at the Astrodome at WrestleMania 17, the conflict between Stone Cold and The Rock wasn't limited to the ring. It became a family affair. Because it was in Texas, I had gotten seats with the WWE family members for my brother Kevin, my sister Jenny, and my good friend Dr. Jimmy Barris and his wife Debbie. They were sitting right behind The Rock's mother, who was just as fanatical as my brother. Kevin was yelling and screaming like an idiot for Stone Cold to kick Rock's ass, even though he knew that the outcome was predetermined. All of a sudden, The Rock's mother turned around and gave Kevin a dirty look. He was so carried away by then, he said to her, What are you looking at? Turn around and watch the damn match. That's my emotional brother, Kevin. The next night, we did SmackDown in Oklahoma City, and I simply used the old Oklahoma-Texas rivalry and the fact that good old JR's a beloved hometown boy made good. We knew we had to take that bitch up to a drastic level, so I beat up JR in front of his family, friends, and hometown crowd. When we did that, yeah, there was a little rise in the heat that night in Oklahoma City. They didn't like it, but it still wasn't that white-hot heat that you want as a heel. I was thinking, damn, if it's not going to be white-hot heat in Oklahoma City when good old JR's busted open like a butchered hog by his buddy, the guy he's loyally stood up for through thick and thin, what's it going to be like next week in Boston and New York? It never caught on. It was one of those deals where everything went sideways. If it had worked, it would have been great. But the people didn't like it. They were taken completely off guard by it. The irony of that is I was still selling more merchandise than anybody else, even though I was supposedly the top villain in the company. Heroes always sell more merchandise than heels. That was some market research we didn't listen to, and that's more my fault than anyone else's. After I turned heel at WrestleMania 17, WWE put a picture of me in the quote, Why, Stone Cold? Why? On the cover of Raw Magazine and sold truckloads of magazines. That was a quote from JR, but I started impersonating JR and making it real whiny sounding. Why, Stone Cold? Why? Just to piss people off. To pour fuel on the fire, when we did Raw in Oklahoma City, we did a live interview in the ring, and JR asked me that question. I couldn't be his friend anymore, so I had to beat him up. I remember the moment I cut him with that blade. Blood was running down his face, and I was pounding the living hell out of him for real. Afterward, backstage, he had a headache and knots all over his head, and he said to me, Damn, Steve, how come after you cut me or hit me so damn hard? Wasn't I bleeding enough? And I said, No, that was just fine. I just wanted to look good for TV. Jarrah said, Well, hellfire, I guess it did. The doctors wanted to give JR a few stitches after the angle, but he opted to have the cut glued shut. Old JR wears that battle scar with pride to this very day. Everyone was asking why I'd turned on my good friend JR. Why, Stone Cold, why? I never thought Steve's heel turn would succeed, no matter how hard all of us worked to get it over. We had jointly built a wrestling franchise in Stone Cold. That was extraordinary. This was not your typical star babyface who at his hottest turns to being a bad guy and it gets over. This was Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
our fans never dislike Steve. It was like attempting to make John Wayne a Nazi. Ain't gonna work. Boy, did that stiff, big-knuckle son of a gun kick my ass good in Oklahoma City on day three of the ill-fated heel turn of Stone Cold. My home state did not like it one bit. They could see Stone Cold beating the barbecue sauce out of good old JR, and they still couldn't understand why. This is not what they wanted to see, in my opinion. I thought I knew what to expect in the beatdown, as I had been hammered by wrestlers several times over the years, and it seemed like I always got beat up in Oklahoma. But let me tell you, I was not ready for what I received. Steve also forgot to take off that damn skull and crossbone ring he wears, and it left knots all over my head. I had attempted to warn my kids, who were in attendance, and my wife, who would see it on SmackDown a couple of days later, but I sort of undersold what I thought it was going to be like. I have been in real fights in my life with less physicality than the angle we did on SmackDown from Oklahoma City. It was 100% old school. I enjoyed being a heel, but I didn't really have the success that I was used to having. So eventually I became a babyface again. But looking back, if I hadn't turned heel back then, I could never have come up with what. So it all works out in the end, I guess. I'm going down to what, 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 Whataburger. And I'm gonna get a Whataburger with cheese. A Whataburger without cheese. A Whataburger with double cheese. A French fries. Some more French fries. I fucking wanted fresh catch fish sandwiches. Another Whataburger with double cheese. And I'm gonna roll in that roll rumble one pissed off some bitch because Triple H, you said you kicked my ass once. You said you kicked my ass once. So you think you can do it again? That's what I said. I said what? When I started doing the what gimmick, I was preparing to wrestle Kurt Angle at SummerSlam on August 19, 2001. I first started saying what was Scotty Tuhati and I was playing like he was Kurt Angle. I was right next to his mouth with the microphone and every time he'd go to open his mouth, I'd go what? What? I was doing it to bully and belittle people, intimidate them and make them look like shit. It worked too. But shortly thereafter, I decided, hey man, this ain't working the way I want. Nobody really wants to hate me that much, so let's go back to being a babyface. I'll make the what thing entertaining, not intimidating. Boom. People started picking up on it and said, okay, if he gives us a space here, we'll say, what? After I'd asked the question and say, what? The fans put two and two together, and then they said, what? They did it all together. Crowd participation is always good. So now... Anytime I talk, if I give them that space there, I get the big what chant from the audience. I love it and they love doing it. I had a lot of fun with that and so did the fans. It made it hard on the other guys, especially Kurt Angle. After it caught on, when somebody would be in the ring cutting a promo and they paused for a second, the crowd would yell, what? It threw off their timing. But Kurt learned to work with it. He's completely endorsed it. At first he said he was mad about it, but you could see right through Kurt and you could tell he was having fun with it. He used it to his advantage. He's great. He's smart. He gets it. I came up with the idea for the next promo while I was driving to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Something popped into my head. I said, I got a concept. 
I got a concept about the Beverly Hillbillies. Then I told somebody about it, and they said, what's this about a Beverly Hills promo? I pitched the idea to Vince. I don't think he really understood it, but he trusts my judgment on things like this. It was one of those deals where it was either going to be a complete success or a complete flop. But he let me go with it, and it turned out to be a complete success. Vince went with my instincts, and it paid off. I went out there and cut the story about the Beverly Hillbillies. I basically sang the whole theme song, pausing at the end of each line for the fans to say what. I walked to the ring, put the mic to my mouth and said, I don't want to keep you guys too long, but I want to tell you a story. This isn't a story about a man named Jed. What? Poor Mountaineer barely kept his family fed. What? I went through the whole deal about the Beverly Hillbillies and then I said, well, that's not the story I'm going to tell you. I said, right now, I'm officially entering myself in the next Royal Rumble. You know, the one I should have been in 2003, had I not taken my unplanned vacation or my walkout from WWE. But never in a million years did I intend for one word like that to get over like it did. Who the hell would have thought that? What? Another guy I really admired and loved to work with was Chris Benoit, a.k.a. the Canadian Crippler. His style was straight ahead take no prisoners, beat me if you can. Like me, he overcame a neck surgery, and his surgery was done by Dr. Youngblood, who did my surgery too. Chris had to take a year off and hold nine yards, just like I did. My favorite match with Chris was at SmackDown on May 31st, 2001 in Edmonton, Canada. It was a match that I needed as a heel as I was having a hard time getting people to hate me. Edmonton was Chris Benoit's hometown, and it was over like gangbusters, so it was a great place for me to try to get the fans to hate me. He's vicious and he's very believable, but so am I. There was true, natural, raw emotion in that match. The ball-headed, foul-mouthed American who had aligned himself with Satan, Mr. McMahon, and the born-and-bred Canadian. There were all these great, plausibly real elements. Even though we weren't in the middle of a hot program, all the elements were there. All the emotion was there. It wasn't written for me. I didn't recite a line. And man, when we can find those personal issues and put guys in plausible emotional situations, it's magic. And I feel like it put Chris Benoit on the map. As amazing a worker as he is, he needed that type of match on TV, and that's what I gave him. And he gave it to me also. I think Chris can make himself a true superstar in our business. He's a wrestler's wrestler, and he should be a champion many times over in the course of his WWE career. Mr. Man loves to see guys kick and scratch and fight to get to the top because that's what this damn business is all about. And Chris Benoit is capable of doing that. The hilarity of Stone Cold Steve Austin singing on Raw was one of those things I came up with while I was injured. I'd broken three vertebrae in my back and Kurt Angle was beat up too, so neither one of us could wrestle, but we'd still go on television and entertain the fans. The singing was my idea. I figured I'm a horrible singer, but I'm a heel, so I can get away with it. As a heel, you can show your ass and get away with it. Coming from my musical background, I always wanted to play the guitar, but I was never able to learn to play it. I went up to Vince and said, I've got some ideas for next week. With all the stuff going on, I figure maybe I'll sing a couple of songs to you on the guitar, try to cheer you up. So I sang Kumbaya to Vince to calm him down, while badly strumming an out-of-tune guitar. Then Kurt moved in on the action, doing the exact same thing and acting like a complete idiot because that's how good and quick-witted he is. He sang Jimmy Crack Corn for Vince and that pissed off Stone Cold because it was Stone Cold's idea to sing to Vince, not Kurt's. Most of that was ad-libbed and it was so much fun. I was just doing my part to be entertaining, 
I couldn't get in the ring and wrestle, so it wasn't heat, but I didn't want to be totally flat as a heel. Anger for the sake of anger with no direction and no chance to do anything about it just makes you boring, in my opinion. That's when we started doing all the comedy stuff with me and Kurt and Vince. We did some real funny things together that people seemed to enjoy and remember. Then I came up with the hugging idea. I just turned heel, so the fans didn't really know what I was thinking. They thought maybe I'd lost it. On Raw, I came out of a limousine and there was Vince, and I got this really psychotic look on my face. Vince looked at me like he was scared. So what did I do? I grabbed him and hugged him, keeping that crazed look on my face the whole time, just staring real hard as we went off the air. I knew if I'd hugged Vince, it would make the fans do something. It would command a reaction of some sort. And it did. The fans went, What the hell is this? As we went off the air. And they tuned in next week to see what was going on with Stone Cold. Then we turned it into an ass-kissing thing with me and Kurt each trying to impress Vince the most and be his favorite. And of course, Kurt's right there because he can be as cheesy as the next person. I mean, the guy's a genuine Olympic gold medalist and he's so quick and funny. He's absolutely amazing. So while Kurt and I healed up, we did some damn entertaining TV and we didn't sit at home. And our characters were still on television and we were still contributing to the show. Kurt, in my opinion, has a chance to become one of the all-time greats in this business. The guy is pure gold. Why did I walk out on WWE on June 10th, 2002? It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. It had been building up for some time. At WrestleMania 18, I was in the third or fourth match. It wasn't even the main event. It was just some match on the card the way I looked at it, and I wasn't happy with that at all. You can tell me this business goes in cycles and sometimes you're not as hot as you want to be, but where I was on that card didn't make sense to me. The match wasn't promoted properly, it wasn't built properly, nothing. After Mania, I was fried. I was burned out and frustrated. Deborah and I didn't even attend the traditional post-WrestleMania party. One day later, before the Montreal Raw in March 2002, I left and was gone for two weeks. So I was in Columbus lying around the hotel room all by myself before the show, and JR gave me a phone call. We talked about what Creative wanted for Monday night. They wanted Brock Lesnar to slip over me real quick, and out of nowhere win, basically, in an unadvertised match with no build-up or promotion or meaning in a tournament-style deal. It would be some kind of screw job ending, and he would catch me for a three-count. I thought that was complete crap. I told JR, they're going to have to change that. I ain't doing it. JR said, well, that's what Vince wants to do. I said, if they don't change it, I ain't going to fucking be there. To me, this wasn't business. JR said, okay, and said he'd call Vince. Vince left a message for me to call him that night, no matter how late it was. When I got to Atlanta and got checked into my hotel room, I called Vince. It was around two in the morning. Hey, Vince. Steve, I'm just calling you back. He ran the same scenario by me. Brock goes over me with no build-up in a surprise situation in a tournament-type match. He laid all that shit by me, and I sat there and listened and said, Okay. Vince was thinking I was saying okay because I agreed to do it, but I was saying, Okay, I'm fucking fed up. Okay, this is bullshit. Now they wanted me to do a job for Brock with zero build-up. I started seeing the writing on the wall. That's when I decided to walk. Right or wrong, it had nothing to do with the fact that it was Brock. It could have been any of a dozen other guys. I love Brock to death. He's a great kid and he's going to be a big superstar in this business. 
But here's the bottom line. I'm Stone Cold Steve Austin. I've drawn more money than anybody in the business. I've reportedly sold more merchandise than anybody in the business. And I've sold more pay-per-views than anybody in the business. So Stone Cold Steve Austin is not the first in line to do a job to Brock Lesnar. This stuff, what I thought were stupid creative decisions, set me off. It was a fuse that lit the dynamite. But the fact was that I had a lot of other problems going on at the same time. My health had been failing for the last six to eight months. My serious neck and back problems were getting worse, and so was the problem I had with the reflexes in my legs. Of course, I wouldn't admit that any of this was happening. I kayfabed it. I didn't say anything about it, but these were ongoing problems, and I could tell my body had had enough. I couldn't perform the way I wanted to. I was frustrated. I was scared. In my mind, I was feeling like less of a man than what I wanted to be, less of a man than I had been. Finally, I'd had enough. As far as I was concerned, it was a done deal. Stone Cold was gone. So that's how it ended with me and Vince in WWE. On June 10, 2002, I walked out on the greatest job I ever had. Everybody thought I left because I was mad about creative decisions, but that wasn't the real reason. That was just the straw that broke the camel's back. The bottom line was I was just overwhelmed, mostly by my health problems. You don't know how it feels to have those kinds of problems unless you're actually physically going through it. They just weigh you down. They change your whole outlook. Back on that WWE Confidential episode that aired the week after I left, the one where Vince and JR explained why I had screwed myself and walked out, they speculated on why I wouldn't meet face-to-face -face with Vince in Atlanta that day on Raw. Why I instead took my ball and went home. JR told the audience that someday the real truth might come out. When? He didn't know. Hi folks, JR here. I personally did not want to do the confidential TV piece we did when Steve walked out, but I had a job to do. The first thing I said when I sat down and we started rolling tape was to express to whoever was listening that I did not want to do this interview. That did not make air. All in all, our staff at TV did an excellent job with the feature. And we had to cover it because it was such a huge story that affected the fans and our company. I said what I felt, and I meant every word I said. I did not see it coming, and I hope that someday the true story of why would come out. That was not a good day at the office. I wiped tears from my face on my drive home. The attack on me was typical of the type of smear campaigns a company carries out when a valued employee leaves on bad terms. Or maybe that's just in the wrestling business. I've seen it plenty of times before, so it wasn't a surprise. I expected it, but some of the comments made by some of the talent surprised me. Others, I knew, were just saying what they were being told to say. But as I said, I understood the game that was being played. No one else really knew what was going on with me. I was feeling all these crazy things going on with my reflexes. I didn't know how to handle it. I wouldn't talk about it to anyone. It's not like I was going to sit there and call Vince and say, Hey, Vince, my health's gone south. You know, it's funny. When WWE did that damn anti-Austin campaign on me and they did a pretty good job on it, I didn't say anything. I just sort of sat back and took it. I mean, they owed it to me and I deserved something like that for leaving, like I did. But man, it wasn't fun. It was pretty damn brutal. So I went home and stayed in shape. I didn't know what would happen next. 
I just figured that something would happen. And one day, that something happened. I got a card in the mail from J.R. He sent me a nice handwritten note that said, basically, I'm here. If you need anything, don't hesitate to call me. J.R. That's when I picked up the phone and called Jim Ross. We talked for two hours. Finally, he said, is there any way you want to meet with Vince and talk about how things got all screwed up at the end? I know that's not how you would have wanted to finish up. I said, yeah, I'd love to talk to him and find out why everything happened like it did, and he can ask me the same thing. JR said, I'll talk to him and see if I can set it up, and I'll call you later. So he set up the meeting. It took place about a month later when Raw was in Houston. The WWE office sets us up in this huge hotel suite at the Western Hotel at the gallery in Houston. Vince walked in. We hugged, shook hands, and he asked how I was doing. It was one of those weird deals where he was beating around the bush a little bit. Then we started talking about current storylines, where I thought they might go. Finally, he was sitting on one couch, and I was sitting on the other, and he said, What the hell happened? And that's when I opened up to him all my frustrations about what they wanted to do to my character and how it was bullshit. But I didn't clue him into what I was going through with my health. He asked me if I would consider coming back, and I said, I'd consider coming back, but not in an active role in the ring. He said, well, that's how creative works. They get you back in a storyline, and then you're back in the ring. He didn't know where I was coming from, and I wasn't ready to tell him about my recent health diagnosis. I told him that I was sorry that I did what I did. Vince and I had that relationship where I'd do anything for the guy. On a personal level, I love the guy to death. But when it comes to business, I don't like to brag, but I do know what I've done in this business, and I've got a pretty big freaking ego, just like he does, and he has to understand that. This was a case of J.R., the outside referee, making the match and putting us together. We hugged, we talked about what was wrong, and in the end, we buried the hatchet. It was an unreal relief. I mean, hell, I love Vince in a strange sort of way. He's given me a lot of knowledge and wisdom. It's been a great job, and I've had so much fun doing it. When I came back to WWE, it was because I didn't like the way I left. I don't like quitting anything. I wanted to fulfill my obligation more because of my personal loyalty to Vince than because of my legacy of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I just wanted to wrap it all up the right way rather than think I disappointed Vince or the fans. I didn't want to screw Vince, and that's the bottom line on that. When I came back to Raw the first time, I seemed to get a hell of a reception, and I did the same thing on the first pay-per-view after my return where I saw the SmackDown talent for the first time in about eight months. The bottom line is I did what I did, and so be it. Some people can understand it, and some people aren't going to understand it, but that's just the way it is. It seemed like almost everybody was glad to see me back, and I was sure glad to see them. For a long time, there was heat between me and Eric Bischoff because he had fired me back in 1995 when my arm got hurt in WCW. I don't give a damn that he fired me. I understand being fired, but respect me enough to do it in my face. So for the longest time, I didn't see Eric Bischoff. As it turned out, the WWE and Eric Bischoff were going to be down in Bandera, Texas, shooting some video vignettes to tease my return. I wasn't in them, but they were about Eric looking for Stone Cold, as on TV he promised Vince he'd deliver me to Raw or lose his job. It's funny how we twist real life into our wrestling storylines and rewrite history, but that's what makes them so much fun. So I figured, okay, I'll just go down and see what's going on. I got there and saw him and I had no intention of blasting the guy or anything like that. So I saw him standing off to the side and said, Hey man, can I talk to you for a minute? 
I pulled him over where we could speak privately and said, Hey, Eric, I guess a lot of people think there's going to be a lot of heat between you and me. You probably think so, too. And for a long time, I was pretty pissed off at you for firing me the way you did. But that's a long time ago. I've been watching you since you came into WWE, and I think you're doing a great job. You know what happened, happened. That's in the past. As far as I'm concerned, if it's all right with you, let's wipe the slate clean and start from zero right here and put all that other crap behind us. I got no animosity towards you. I'm not mad at you. Whatever. And you can see a sea of relief wash over him. Eric answered, that'd be great with me, Steve. Then we shook hands. We were headed toward the pay-per-view No Way Out on February 23rd, 2003, where we would finally work a match against each other. Eric called me a few times to talk about some ideas and stuff like that. Then we got to the match. As Eric had said, it worked out fine. I know I caught him with a couple of really good stiff shots, but hey, it was my first time back and I needed to look vicious and look good. I'm sure some of the boys thought I had roughed Bischoff up on purpose, but that wasn't the case. I was rusty as hell and I naturally work a little snug anyway. But the hatchet was buried. I have a lot of respect for the guy for being tough enough to handle a beating. It all worked out and it was a good return for Stone Cold. I gave him a couple of stunners and then pulled his arm up off the mat before the three count, basically telling the audience I wanted to punish him some more. That was pretty cool. Still, Eric handled it pretty damn well. He never bitched one time about me landing spuds on him. Now I actually enjoy working with Eric as we have a lot of chemistry together. Even though I was gone for eight months, for Stone Cold's fans, it was like I never left. Anywhere it was announced that Steve Austin would be appearing for autographs, it was a madhouse. I'm not bragging about that. It just makes me happy and extremely proud of the feelings my fans had for Stone Cold. They all wanted me to come back and kick someone's ass, and they didn't care who. My fans stood by me, thinking, whatever the reason, that I was going through some bad times and the company acted hastily in burying me on TV. Of course, not everybody was glad to shake my hand. A small percentage of the population thought that what I was doing was sacrilegious, that the Austin 316 bit was wrong, or they didn't like the way I flipped the bird, or they didn't like my colorful language. You know, that's great, because I need those guys too. They make all the fans who really love me stand up for me even more. People are funny. If everyone likes you, that's not really a good thing because they eventually get lukewarm on you. The crowd psychology is weird at different times of your career. The first time I saw Steve in person after his unscheduled hiatus of eight months or so from WWE was on January 2nd, 2003 in Los Angeles after the Sooners won the Rose Bowl. I had called Steve and let him know I was going to the game and he told me he was going to be in L.A. at the same time, so we decided to get together. A few hours after the game, we arrived back at our hotel, which happened to be the same hotel where the OU team and staff, along with tons of Oklahoma fans, were staying as well. Steve arrived wearing an old Las Vegas Outlaw XFL football jersey and a customary cap someone had given him. The OU players and fans flocked to him like crazy. I think it made Steve feel real good. Here these kids are, after just winning the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl, and all they wanted to talk about is when is Stone Cold coming back. He must have signed a hundred autographs standing outside the hotel while we were talking.
It's WrestleMania 19 in Seattle. I wake up after a fitful night's sleep to learn that I've been medically cleared. I can wrestle. I check out of the hospital on Sunday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Bob Clark and Chris Brandon from WWE come to pick me up. They take me back to the hotel where I take a shower, shave, shampoo my hair. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's do some CDs and make a few phone calls. One of the people I call is Kevin Nash because he heard what was going on and left some messages, but I hadn't spoken to him. The hospital wasn't letting phone calls through. He's in his room, so I go upstairs and we talk about what happened. He offers me a ride to the building, but I tell him I've already told JR I would ride with him and Jerry Lawler to Safeco Field. Kevin says he'll just ride over with us if it's okay. So we both go down and meet with JR and the King, and we all ride over to the arena together. In the limo, Jerry looks at me and says, matter of factly, you all right? I say, yeah. He doesn't know I spent the night in the hospital. He just asked me in general if I'm all right. The whole deal's been pretty confidential, pretty hushed up. Not too many people know what had happened. J.R., who has always looked out for the talent, hadn't even mentioned it to the king. We get to the arena and I report to the agent for my match, which in this case is Pat Patterson. Pat always does the Rock's matches. That afternoon, Rock and Pat and I go out and sit in the ring in Seattle at Safeco Field. We talk different scenarios and I figure it out. I say I'll get a couple of stunners in on him and then he'll get me with three rock bottoms in a row. I'll barely get out of the first two somehow, but on the third one I tell him, you hang that elbow out there and hold it for six or eight seconds so the people know that this is it for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Then give it to me. My leather vests are made for me by one of the WWE seamstresses, Terry Anderson. I have different ones, all of them with three different letters on them. Some of them say DTA for don't trust anybody. Others say SOB for son of a bitch, or BMF for bad mother. You figure out the rest. But the three letters always mean something. On the vest Terry's made for me for my last WrestleMania in Seattle, it says OMR for one more round. That's how I feel going into this match, that I'm going to do this one more round, one more time. More than likely, one last time. But I'm not really sure I'm going to make it through the match, and after being out of wrestling for eight whole months, I'm afraid I won't have any timing. Then they crash the glass and hit my damn music. When my music goes on and 54,000 people light up like they're on fire, I tell myself, I can do it one more time. One more round. When I walk in the ring, I know everything's going to be okay. I truly feel like I'm in a sacred place. I go into the match adamant the Rock will go over. They will win the match. I haven't discussed it with anybody, but I'm going to put the rock over in the middle of the ring. If I couldn't do that, I wouldn't have entered the match. That's a no-brainer. There's no other finish to this. A lot of times when the office calls you to go over matches and lineups, the finish of the match is the last thing they talk about. This is one of those deals where the office didn't have to talk about it with me. It's for me and Rock alone to talk about. I know it's going to happen. I know it has to happen. And I want to do it because I've beaten The Rock a lot of times in big matches. It's the right thing to do because this is business. It's the right time. There's a story, a reason for the match. I've beaten Rock at two WrestleManias. Rock's going to go on the road next month and draw another pay-per-view against a different guy. He's got to win. Stone Cold Steve Austin might end up being the general manager of Raw, or he might be selling t-shirts. Who knows what he's going to do? So there's only one logical conclusion, and that's to put the rock over clean right in the middle of the ring. No cheating, no foot on the ropes, no pulling tights, no interference, whatever. And that's exactly what happens.
Two of the top guys in the business worked their asses off in a sold-out arena. It's just a badass seesaw back-and-forth battle. People are going crazy. In the end, Rock stands there for I don't know how many seconds with that elbow hanging over me. And when it falls, the fans know this is really it for Stone Cold. After Rock pins me for the one, two, three, he leans over me real close and says, I love you, man. And I know he means it. I tell the guy I loved him too, and he knows I mean it. Then the Rock says, you'll never know how much this means to me. Thank you so very, very much. You don't know how much I appreciate this. I'll never forget it. I'm glad to have been able to do it for him. The main thing, though, is that the fans seem to like it. When I took off a year for that neck surgery, and then when I walked out for eight months, those were both career suicides. I'm fortunate to have worked hard enough to have a strong base of people who have stayed loyal to me. They've stuck with me, and I still wanted to find a way to entertain them. After the match is over, I come up the ramp for the last time and I look at the fans. It's a sight I'll never forget. I give them the double birds and the crowd explodes. I get a huge cheer as if I'd won the match, and that's always great to hear. And my music is playing as I'm leaving. That's cool. Rock was a so-called heel in that match, or at least he was doing his best to get his fans to dislike him. But when we did that finish right in the middle, one, two, three, it set him up to do business down the road. The Rock beat Stone Cold at WrestleMania 19. That's what the record book will always say. It was never acknowledged on TV that this was my last match, but old JR knew. If you look at me on the video coming up the ramp afterward, you can see it on my face. I was pretty emotional. I was completely relieved. It was like someone had just taken a big weight off my back. I had fulfilled my contract and my obligation to Vince McMahon and his family. I had closure character-wise and didn't end up having to be stretched out of the ring when the match was over. But it was weird for me. I wish I could still wrestle a regular schedule, but I knew I couldn't, so I accepted that. I knew there were lots of people way worse off than I was. My time had passed, sure, but I was still one lucky South Texas redneck. I rode back to the hotel with JR. I think it was appropriate that the last ride from WrestleMania for the wrestler known as the Texas Rattlesnake was with good old JR. He asked me how I felt. He said I looked relieved. I was. I'd been under the knife so many times with my knees, my neck, and all this other stuff, it was great to know that I wouldn't have to go out there and perform at a substandard level. I felt good that I'd not only got through the match with The Rock without getting hurt, but had put on a pretty damn solid match. I'd been on for eight months, but thank goodness my time and all just came back to me. I really liked what we did and was happy it was over, especially after so much apprehension about doing such a physical match at an event of the caliber of WrestleMania. I went to the company's big post-WrestleMania party. I kind of camped myself in one spot and talked to whoever came by. It was kind of fun. WWE really knows how to throw a party for all the hardworking people in the company who do such great work at WrestleMania. Then I went up to my room. I was just thinking, wondering what the next step was. What's going to happen next? I remember telling Vince more than five years ago that I only had three years left in the business as a wrestler. And despite that, I was still there at WrestleMania. But now it was over. Was I sore the next day? Yeah, a little. Did I injure anything new or make anything worse? No. Is Stone Cold retired from active wrestling in the ring? Probably. You never say never in this crazy business, but I wouldn't bet on my wrestling again. There had to be an ending. This was closure. This was the finishing touch to Stone Cold's active wrestling career. 
It all made sense storyline-wise. My story now had an end as well as a beginning. Nowadays, I miss going out and wrestling, and my fans miss it too, no doubt. The WWE fan base is extremely loyal in general, but the Stone Cold fans are more intense and more loyal than any of them, and I absolutely love them to death. So they might be disappointed that I can't go out there and raise hell and drink and cuss and challenge guys to wrestling matches. In my final match, I laid on my back and looked at the lights for three seconds and I knew that my wrestling career was over. But what I did was right. For me, for WWE, for The Rock, for the wrestling business, it felt real good. I haven't always made the right decisions, but I nailed this one square on the head. And that's how my in-ring wrestling career ended. But Stone Cold Steve Austin's story ain't over. Believe me. If I ran WWE in a perfect world, I'd take the business back 10 or 15 years. I'm talking about the wrestling style, bell to bell. That means slow down, take less chances, and tell better stories. The way it was in the 80s, or when I was really hot in 1996, 1997, and 98. Raw on Monday nights was raw. Raw is so damn slick right now, it ain't raw at all. The first change I would make would be to have unscripted promos. I'd force guys to use their brains. Make it a spontaneous situation where guys are forced to use their hearts, their heads, and their guts. When someone asked them a question, they wouldn't just be regurgitating some BS written on a piece of paper that they had to memorize. It's better to let wrestlers be themselves. The cream will rise to the top. So I'd go back to the in-ring product. I'd slow down the process of putting guys in a main event environment, if I had that luxury. It would also be nice to have two separate locker rooms. One for heels and one for babyfaces, and have guys learn how to call matches again. Just like back in the old days when the referee came in the locker room and gave you the finish and gave the other guy the finish, and you went out in the ring and you worked that style. To me, that's why there's no emotion in the matches anymore. They're so rehearsed and prefab, it looks like a performance. Guys have to think on their feet again and be able to call matches in the ring. That's one of the things I miss about the business these days. That's what most people don't understand about wrestling. If you memorize your match in the back and you go out and do it verbatim and the fans don't buy it, you've cheated them. You didn't listen to them. You didn't observe them. You didn't see what got them going and what didn't. One of the best things we can start doing on the road right now is give the talent the finish of the match and that's it. Bingo. Let them talk about it and as they work their match, let them listen to the crowd and work with them. I've also got a few pet peeves about the business. Imagine that. I don't like guys being late for work, but then again, I am a real-time fanatic. I always was one of the first guys in the building my whole career. I can't stand guys complaining all the time and bitching that they're not getting a break. Every now and then it's warranted, but more often than not, it's a lack of work ethic or a lack of something else. Maybe a lack of talent, but they're going to bitch about it even so. And sometimes all the backstabbing and politics and the BS gets a little old. There is no excuse to not be in condition in this business. There's no excuse for that at all. You can be anything and get into this business if you have the talent. But once you get into the wrestling business, you'd better be in shape and you better have your head on straight. And becoming champion isn't just a matter of carrying the hardware or making more money. It's the opportunity to assume a position of leadership. It's the chance to become responsible more than anyone else for putting an ass in the seats every 18 inches. In old school wrestling lingo, that means a full house is there to see you. WWE is a billion dollar corporation trusting you with the responsibility of representing that company. 
I don't think most guys realize just how much money you can make in that position. I never knew how much money I could make. I always tell guys to listen to the audience and go with it. But there's so much posturing and gesturing in the ring. And guys looking over the shoulder at the crowd when it's not time to look at the crowd yet. And some guys shouldn't be looking at the crowd at all because they don't have the wrestling part down yet either. I wonder how many guys actually practice their promos in the car. Or at home. Or in their head in the gym. Or on their way to the grocery store. How many guys actually think about their character? I don't think enough guys are putting in time on their own to get better. That's all I used to think about. What was I going to say or do next? It's like playing chess. Plan several moves ahead and don't just wait on them. Also, let creative know your ideas so they may get wasted. Besides getting your character going and concentrating on wrestling, young wrestlers need to establish a relationship with Vince and JR and with Kevin Dunn and his creative group. You become noticed much more at that level than you do in the ring. I'd like to see the business enjoy another surge in popularity, but the only way that's going to happen is for some of those guys to do their homework. They need to be who and what they are and let WWE magnify that, put a rocket pack on the back of it and market the hell out of it. That's the way you get different personalities, not by one guy writing all the promos. If a wrestler's good and he's got natural talent and ability, he'll succeed and be a star. If he sucks, he'll fall to the side. And guys gotta sell. Not selling offensive moves kills the business. Hell, selling in the proper degree is a lost art. The boys who perfect it will take a huge jump forward to the promised land. I remember talking to veteran wrestler Tojo Yamamoto in Dallas at the Sportatorium a long time ago. He said, you have to know how to sell. Then he told me to grab his ear. I grabbed his ear and he went crazy with pain and sank to the floor. And I thought I killed the guy. He looked up at me and smiled. You get it? All I did was touch his earlobe and it made it look like I was tearing it off. A light bulb went off in my head. I got it. I didn't hurt you, but boy, you made it look like I hurt you. The other trap for young guys is they don't keep their heads straight. I've seen people come in here and have some success and go haywire. Hell, anybody in that locker room today could be as successful or even more successful than I was. They just have to come up with the right idea, the right gimmick. I came up with a character that fits and works for me. I'm certainly not a rocket scientist. I got lucky. But I made sure that all the right people knew what I was thinking. As far as I'm concerned, sports and entertainment and wrestling all fall under the same umbrella because you're out in front of a crowd. That crowd is there to see you perform, and the crowd is being entertained. Being up and down the roads with the pain and the bumps and everything that comes with it can be grueling. At WCW, we were on the road up to 27 days a month, and I know guys who were on the road for 100-something days consecutively without going home. You're going to pick up some habits, and not all of them good. The talent takes hundreds of bumps a year. Hell, maybe hundreds in a month. And yes, they go and work the next day and sometimes have a prescription for a pain medication from her doctor. But abuse of anything is bad. Just think, you've got this golden opportunity to be a professional wrestler for a big company. Don't blow it and your life by being stupid. Vince and JR are your fathers, and you don't want to disappoint them by doing something dumb and maybe ending up dead. I hate to see people flush their careers down the toilet because they're screwing up with drugs, much less lose their lives at such a young age. And it's even worse when they leave families behind. Drink beer instead. In moderation, of course. It's now Monday, April 28, 2003, almost a month after WrestleMania 19, where I lost to The Rock. 
It's time to get back on that ride, and they've got a seat saved for me. WWE Raw is going to be broadcast tonight live from Boston on TNN. I've had a good workout and a good lunch, and I'm damn sure ready. In the Raw storyline to this point, Eric Bischoff, the general manager of Raw, has been abusing his power. He fired me the day after WrestleMania 19 because of my health, saying I was a medical risk. The stuff Bischoff read on Raw about how bad my health was and why he was firing me were actual quotes from my most recent medical report. Up until then, it had been kayfabe, kind of a secret. All of a sudden, it was being read on the damn show. Then J.R. quit the following Monday night while in a heated argument with Bischoff over how Eric treated Stone Cold. Raw will have a new general manager starting tomorrow morning, sharing authority and duties 50-50 with Eric. Eric begs and the crowd buzzes about who it could be. Linda McMahon tells Eric that the new co-general manager is someone who will be able to keep Bischoff in line. Then you hear the sound of glass breaking and my music hits and the Boston crowd goes totally wild. I walk down the ramp to the ring and cut a fun promo asking Eric to trust me in our new partnership. I give the audience all the pauses so they can say what with me and it's great. I start out by saying, how you doing, Eric? He looks worried. What? The crowd yells in unison. Eric's face sinks, knowing what's coming. He won't be able to get a word in edgewise. You doing all right? What? The crowd yells. You feeling good? What? Are you nervous? What? Scared? What? What's the deal? What? Eric starts to say something, and I interrupt him, saying, You don't have to say anything. I bet you think there's no way this can work. What? The crowd yells. You're thinking there's no way we can be partners. What? Work together. What? As a unit. What? Put it there, I say, and I stick my hand out to shake his hand. He hesitates and says, I don't know, Steve. This isn't a marriage made in heaven, you know what I mean? I respond with, so right off the bat you're saying you don't trust me? I can read it all over your face. You don't trust me. Bischoff is playing it down, so I holler to the audience, if you think Eric Bischoff should trust Stone Cold Steve Austin, give me a hell yeah. Of course, the audience responds with, hell yeah. Then I tell him I want to make sure I heard it right, so give it to me again. This time the hell yeah is even louder. That was for emphasis. So much for Steve Austin not ever getting over in this business again, right, Eric? Then I go back to Bischoff and tell him, So you're saying, by not shaking my hand, you don't trust me? He says, You know, Steve, I want this to work. I really do. I come back with, Do you? What? The crowd yells. Promise? What? Swear? What? You mean it? What? From the bottom of your heart? What? You're telling the truth? What? So I stick my right hand out again and remind Eric that starting tomorrow we're going to be partners, 50-50, and we're going to get along. I grab his hand and we shake. I then remind him that the key word is tomorrow, and to everyone's cheers, kick him right in the gut and put a stone-cold stunner on him. And that's how the live show ends. After we're off the air and it's just the audience in the building watching us, Bischoff is just getting up. I go to shake his hand and help him up, but he shakes me off. Finally gets up and shakes my hand, and I stun him three more times. The crowd loves it, and that's what it's all about, giving the fans something extra and having some fun with it. I can't wrestle, but I can sure hand out some managerial justice and a few stunners here and there. The following Monday night on WWE Raw, the first thing I do as a new co-general manager is to rehire JR as a Raw announcer. Screw Bischoff. Sorry, coach. 
I get home from Raw in Boston on Tuesday. I drop my stuff at home and go to the gym. While there, my probation officer calls me up on my cell phone. I've been released early from my probation for doing everything the court asked me to do and not messing up. All of a sudden, my eyes light up. One of the terms of my probation was that I couldn't pop open a can of beer, so I'd been deprived of that trademark in into my matches. Stone Cold Steve Austin can now do the end of his act again, and I do it plenty the following Monday in Halifax. I call up Vincent and suggest to him that on next Monday's Raw, we have a real-life kick-ass beer bash. America's favorite beer drinker is back. Stone Cold Steve Austin is always a work in progress. And what's happening now is just another change on top of all the others. It's a different role since I'm not wrestling, but I've come to grips with that. And now I'm just going forward with the current storyline. It's a lot of fun and people seem to like it. I'm back on that ride. I'm happy as hell. You know, life has its challenges. I never read about anybody who amounted to anything who didn't undergo a journey that had its ups and downs, its peaks and its valleys. The key is how you respond to all of them. I've never walked away from my challenges or my responsibilities. I'll tell you one thing, life ain't perfect and neither am I. The way I see it, Stone Cold's ride is just beginning. Oh, hell yeah. The Stone Cold Truth was read by Stone Cold Steve Austin with Jim J.R. Ross.